Chris Charlesworth of the Melody Maker. It must be hell living up to a name. You expect too much from a man like McCartney. Rem is so incredibly inconsequential and so monumentally irrelevant it's difficult to concentrate on, let alone dislike or even hate. John Lanner, Rolling Stone. Ram represents the nadir in the decomposition of 60s rock thus far. It is by now apparent that Lennon held the reins in on McCartney's cutesy pie, florid attempts at pure rock music. Robert Crisco of The Village Voice. Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey, is a major annoyance. I tolerated McCartney's crotchets with Beatles because his names balanced them out. If you're going to be eccentric, for goodness sake, don't be pretentious about it. It sounds like the worst piece of light music Paul has ever done. Somehow his lyrics about the joys of the country are being false. Rather than a sense of self-acceptance or pride, I get a feeling of self-pity and self-justification in his cut. C plus. By music so competent in effects with team that it all seems to slip away. On three legs, they do strange and pointless things to the sound of the voice to liven it up. It doesn't work. He was there to keep McCartney from going off the deep end, and that leads to an album as emotionally vacuous as Ram. The light jazz overtones, obviously intended as Paul's idea of melody. The odd thing about it is that within the context of the Beatles, Paul's talents were beyond question. It is by now apparent that Lennon held the reins on McCartney's cutesy pie from the defense and pure music. It all seems to slip away. I thought it was awful. McCartney had better tunes on it. He seems to be dying on the vine as a result of his own self-imposed musical isolation. I don't think there's one good tune on that one. He seems to be going straight. McCartney creates music with a fully developed veneer, little intensity, and no energy. And Monkberry Moon Delight is the bore to end all thoughts. Paul repeats a riff for five and a half minutes to no apparent purpose. All of which makes it no less easy to deal with this very bad album from this very talented artist. Paul's is represented by Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey. A piece with so many changes, it never seems to come down anywhere. And in the places that it does, sounds like the worst piece of light music Paul has ever done. In this light, Paul has simply proven to be the most vulnerable. He was there to keep McCartney from going off the deep end, and that leads to an album as emotionally vacuous as Ram. All of which makes it no less easy to deal with this very bad album from this very talented artist. And Monkberry Moon delight is the bull to end all bulls. Smile away has sunk with that exaggerated voice he used for the rock and roll medley and let it be. It is unpleasant. The company creates music that fully developed the near little intensity and no energy. It is by now apparent that Lennon held the reins in on McCartney's cutesy pie, florid attempts at pure rock music. The odd thing about it is that within the context of the Beatles, Paul's talents will be on It's so monumentally irrelevant, you can't even do that with it. It's 
difficult to concentrate on, let alone dislike or even hate. Somehow his lyrics about the joys of the country are false. Rather than a sense of self-acceptance or pride, I get a feeling of self-pity and self-justification for his cousin. He seems to be dying on the vine as a result of his own self-imposed musical isolation. is Ram. So we are discussing the legendary album Ram in honor of its 50th anniversary. And to do this, I have the great luck of having the wonderful and amazing Dr. Duncan Driver here with me again. Welcome, Duncan. Thank you very much. You know that uh, by now, if you introduce me in superlative terms, I'm only going to turn around and do the same thing back to you. So can I introduce <laughs> well, you? Can I do it. Sure. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, when Shakespeare wrote the words, time cannot wither her, nor custom stale her infinite variety. It's possible he was thinking of Cleopatra, but I think it's far more likely that he was thinking of One Sweet Dream's host, Diana Erickson. Oh, wow. Well, that's lovely. I'm not going to always have you introduce <laughs> me. Thank you. No worries. So I'm so excited we're talking about uh, Ram today because I know we both love Ram a lot. I do. Right? I do. I'm, I'm happy to... Um, to admit that, uh, and have been for many years. It's it's odd in some ways. Um, the the relatively recent upsurge in Ram love has made me want to turn around and stamp my feet and say, "I've loved this album <laughs> for the last thirty years." And all you posers are now jumping on the Ram bandwagon. I know. Where were you when it was nothing? <laughs> Through the wilderness years. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's not only one of my favorite McCartney albums, but it's actually. When I think about it, it's one of my all-time favorite albums. Yeah, I would you know, agree up, with that. Up there with many Beatles albums. Okay, but Duncan, if you would indulge me for a couple of moments, I have a little host preamble before we get into the album. Please, I'm intrigued. <laughs> Okay, well, I am so happy we have the opportunity to discuss Ram in detail, because although Ram is getting lots of love these days, and I, I love seeing that, I think it deserves more. It doesn't have the fame that it should, or the cultural or artistic cachet, which is a pity because more people need to know about its very unique pleasure. I find that so many people, when they stumble upon it, they're amazed. It's like... How come I didn't know about this before? Or how, how come nobody talks about this album? And that's an issue. 
it isn't spoken about with the same reverence or respect as All Things Must Pass or Plastic Ono Band, or even other great albums of the era, which is not to diminish Plastic Ono Band or All Things Must Pass, because they deserve all the praise they receive, and I hope to discuss them in the future. But Ram's significance and artistic merit have been overlooked. And if you don't believe me, look at the accounts of the 70s music scene, even today. Ram probably won't get a mention. No, I, I'm reminded of the fact that um, a series that Apple made about 1971 does not mention Ram at all. And that's not to say that filmmakers have an obligation to talk about Ram. They're free to do what they want. But I'd have thought that a multi-part, several-hour investigation of music in the year that Ram was released might rate a mention of that album. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. Its cultural significance is not being recognized. Mm. And I think that Ram is every bit as powerful and important a creative statement as those albums. And its influence is as far-reaching, and yet it doesn't get mentioned. Yeah, I feel like Ram, let's say you made the comparison to All Things Must Pass. I think All Things Must Pass gets regarded in the way that Friar Park sometimes gets regarded as a sort of towering cathedral of musical impressiveness. Whereas even when people are, are looking for things nice to say about Ram, they're kind of saying, isn't this little quaint cottage that the McCartneys live in charming if you look at it from the right angle? And that's a very yeah, different, that's right, slightly backhanded compliment. <laughs> right, exactly. And that that is, that is again, not to say that Friar Park or All Things Must Pass need to be diminished because they no, are incredible. They are. But the point is that Ram is incredible. Ram is a jewel. It's one of Paul McCartney's masterpieces, his eccentric off-kilter Sgt. Pepper of the 70s, you know? Hmm. It's Paul at his most loose and inventive and honest. And Paul at his best, at the height of his powers, is really a thing to behold. Like, it's incredible that Paul McCartney is one of our most famous musicians. And this was really when Paul's talent and creativity were almost superhuman. And yet this isn't looked upon as the album that it is, you know, which is gold. Every day she takes a morning bath, she wets her hair Wraps a towel around her as she's heading for the bedroom chair It's just another day Slipping into stockings, stepping into shoes Dipping in the pocket of her raincoat It's just another day You know, there's a, there's a guitarist named um, Mike Keneally who was talking about McCartney in 1971, and he said, McCartney was just being visited by the melody gods at this time. And, and I think that that's what Ram is. Although I'm making the case to take the album's artistic merits seriously, the album itself is not particularly serious, or it doesn't take itself seriously, that's which true. is part of its charm. The album is joyful and earthy and purposefully ramshackled. It's full of swagger and cockiness and fight. Paul is defiant and fearless and ready to take names, which is really fun. He's full of himself in a good way, and he's got something to prove. But he does it in a way where he surrounds everything with gorgeous melodies and exquisite harmony so we almost don't notice. 
I've always found the reviews of Ram confusing and almost painful because I love this album so much. To have spoken about an even dismissed great artist's work in the way that they did was unconscionable, which is why we had so much fun sending them up at the beginning. But also I wanted to bring to life the environment that Paul and Linda were living through. I mean, obviously those were a reaction to the album, but it's the type of attitude they were encountering at the time. But I've still wondered what they were listening to when it came out because they miss so much. I even asked Chris Salovich in my discussion with him, what was going on at that time that it was so panned? And of course the answer is always, well, it was the cultural time. It was the political environment. Paul was the villain of the breakup. You know, which sort of answers it, but not really because everyone got really worked up. I think there's another reason for its rejection, particularly by the cultural elite. And I think this reason is probably the more significant one. And that is that the sound of Ram was new. It was unexpected. It was not the polished pop perfection of Paul's Beatles work because he was reinventing. And being the great artist he is, he was innovating, creating something new and groundbreaking. And like any great new work of art that challenges the dominant aesthetic, it can be off-putting because it's not familiar. And we all love familiar. It's easier to embrace innovations that are aligned with the current trends, which Ram was not. It was its own thing. It was different in that it incorporated retro elements. You hear echoes of Buddy Holly, the Beach Boys, 50s doo-wop, 60s rock and roll, but everything's turned a little sideways. He's mashed them up and fused them in new reimagined ways and layered them with different textures. And even the song structures are a little bit more irregular because clearly that's what he was interested in. It's the difference between backseat of my car in all its glory versus the formal beauty of long and winding road. Both are epic, but to the uninitiated, it can perhaps be a little strange. To some people, obviously some people it was very intriguing, but to a lot of people it was off-putting. Like ham you know? and pineapple on pizza. <laughs> Sorry, just <laughs> exactly. to go to a stupid place. My mind just went there. In, unless you're vegan, in which case, never. My apologies. <laughs> Yeah, but I think that that's actually one of the reasons why, you know, for example, I remember hearing Peter Asher saying that he didn't like it. I've been really disappointed with his records, but I still know how great he is. And I mean, I know he's a genius and I'll still go on buying each album and listening to it three or four times before I admit that it isn't very good for at least another dozen albums. But he's so good that I'm sure that that eventually he'll get back into it and make some just brilliant records. Uh, I, I can't understand why Linda's in his band, you know, at the, whisk, at the risk of being blunt. When we were doing Ram, the headline was, who does Linda McCartney think she is? This whole thing about how I'm not fashionable, Paul's... And, and Ringo saying that, you know, there's not a single good tune. He's gone strange. It's just like, okay, Ringo, I can kind of understand that he was pissed off with Paul. So maybe he's not even listening. 
But that's odd for the world's most melodic album. To, yeah, methinks you know? the drummer doth protest too much. I think, <laughs> well, I think if you listen to Ram, one thing that does come out at you a lot is an overwhelming abundance, a glut of melody, of tunefulness. Uh, so I feel like he's, I don't know, like he's, he's claiming that something isn't there that clearly is there. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. But, uh, but a lot of people did say that, like, you know, there were so many bad reviews at the time that it wasn't all politics. I just think that Paul was forging a new sound that was undefinable and they kind of wanted old Paul mm. and they wanted Abbey Road or they wanted Let It Be. And this was not that. Paul was put in an unusual position among the Beatles. He so defined the late stage sound of the Beatles that it almost this almost required him to abandon what was natural to him at that time. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it was natural to him to be writing Golden Slumbers or, you know, you never give me your money or let it be. And for him to not sound Beatlesque, he had to invent a new sound. And I think he does with Ram. He infuses all of these, like a little bit of country, a little bit of pop, rock, folk, you know, all of this together. Obviously, the melodies are there. But, you know, there is a strong argument to be made that he really was creating the blueprint for what we now know as indie, indie rock, indie pop. And because now we are so familiar with that, it's, it's, it's hard to understand why people didn't like it. Like to me, Linda's voice is so integral and important. I cannot understand why people would have reacted to it. Because we hear a lot of that in indie rock. You know, I guess in those days, they just weren't accustomed to it. That's right, yeah. You listen to it from this side of history or culture, uh, and you're familiar with things like sad, wistful songs sung on a ukulele, like yes. that version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow that was massive yes. and around, you know, 2005 or something. Right, right. Um, it has, that has, by the way, like almost a billion views. Exactly. On and maybe you, you don't fully appreciate the extent to which that kind of thing owes a debt to Ram.
but you're also more familiar with its sounds and its its aesthetic palette that it doesn't strike you or shock you in the way that it might have in 1971. Right. And at that time, that was so fresh and beautiful, you know, like that was so simple. And then you go back 35 years to Ram and you're like, oh, okay. Wow. Paul is really ahead of his time. Absolutely. Eric Wangberg, the mixing engineer of Ram, he was asked what he thought of the reviews. And he said, I didn't really care because I knew how good it was and I knew it would take a while for people to understand it. And I hope that Paul understood that. You know, he he does say that, it, you know, he was hurt by the reviews. But as we've discussed, he seems to be pleased and slightly vindicated or majorly vindicated these days, which does suggest that he always held that belief that it was great, right? Yeah. He's almost doing a little version of that now in a lot of McCartney 3 publicity where he talks about how much he he likes his own track, um, Check My Machine. And I think, you're already saying this, Paul, because everyone else is now talking about what a great track that is. <laughs> but yes, I, I, I do recognize that in addition to uh, making uh, lazy comparisons to his own most popular work, I yes. also sense that there is an impulse to Paul that, that recognizes when his stuff is good and in a weird way is kind of inoculated against some of this criticism. Otherwise, he wouldn't have kept going. Well, that's right. And I think that Linda was critically important to saying that it doesn't matter. They don't understand. They will catch up. And actually, Paul was way tougher at the time. You know, there was critics that were so rude to him. And I'm just saying, give it time. It will grow on you. Like, yeah. he understood that, that it is different. It is new. Give it a chance, mm. you know? Like, five months after it was... Uh released ram was still sort of selling you know it took about five months to sort of sell you know whereas some records just do it in two weeks and are out of the charts you know it's put together to in order to that i'd like the album you know that's the only st uh, standard i go by ever you know is if i like it at that time the difference in the music is just that i like different things at different times you know so that's why the albums change and that's why but i don't I, each time I go to make an album or a record of any description, I'm just trying to make a good record, you know. That's all, Paul, that's all there is to it, you know. Just a good record, just trying to please the customer. The stuff I don't really like uh, will sometimes get converted into... Paul, in some ways, has always lacked the ability to champion his stuff well. Maybe he didn't even recognize, like, he understood that people needed time with it, but I don't know if he recognized how new and different it was like he, it would have been great if he could have gone out and said look i'm such a genius that it's going to take you guys like 10 15 maybe 35 years to get this but he doesn't do that kind of thing but i kind of wish he did you know or had done that yeah so when he's um when he talks about being vindicated it's always in terms of uh, you know the album was destroyed for me by critics but then rescued for me by fans <laughs> uh, I, 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 that's that's generous of him um yeah. he yeah he, he could if he wanted to say here's an example of where a work of art is so ahead of its time so groundbreaking right. so strange and weird and and uh, mercurial that it's going to take you a long time before you catch up to where I was in 1971. Right. And that that's personally what I'd love to hear him say, but he's not going to do that. No. So we need to say it for him. Yeah. Okay. So we're saying that's that for you that's right now. Job. That Exactly. Exactly. And you know who else was a huge fan of this album? Linda McCartney. 
when she was asked about in the eighties about what you know what she loved, she said she loved loved Ram. That this was just you know an album that she adored. Yeah. And so we agree, Linda. Yeah, you and I um, have that in common. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one thing. I think it was incredibly ahead of its time. I think another thing, I've started to think about this album in a slightly different way. And that is, it is always presented in the context of the Beatles and the Beatles breakup and what the other Beatles were doing at the time. And so it really is compared to what John and George were doing. And I think that that is not appropriate because Ram is so much its own thing. It's not of, it, of its time. It was created on a farm in the middle of nowhere. I have no answer for you, Rimland. I could help you out, but I cannot help you in. You know, John was much more, even though what John did was revolutionary, he was more in touch with the zeitgeist, you know, a little bit more connected to the trends. When you take Paul out of the context of the Beatles and start to think of Paul as an independent artist, you know, just Paul McCartney, great musician of the 20th century. His first act was with the Beatles. And then he had a second act and maybe a third and fourth act. But when you think of it as this is his, the beginning of his second act, you know, McCartney and Ram, although I think that Ram is, a, you know, an elevated, more defined vision of who Paul was as independent artist. That helps me think through what was Paul the artist giving to the world at that time, rather than seeing it compared to what they were doing. You know, what was his contribution to the world of music as an independent artist? And so it sort of allows Paul's album, his own music, his own contributions to be seen on their own artistic merit, you know? I do. If I see this through his artistic journey as Paul McCartney, in the way that I would say Picasso, mm. you know, that this was one period and then he changed or Matisse, you know, Matisse was very into one thing and then he reinvented and those are all, you know, maybe some periods were more influential than others, but that's what he needed as an artist. And that's kind of how I started to think about this period as he was inventing something new for the world. I think it had tremendous impact as well in a different way. I mean, you know, nobody, no artist can, can replicate the impact of the Beatles, but I think that this did have a lasting impact. And so that's sort of how I'm thinking about Ram is let's look at it from the perspective of Paul McCartney as artist, because it's not like Paul lost his talent or brilliance or drive, you know? So I think that it, it's good to look at this with curiosity, like what did he do next? What did he want to bring to the world next? And you know, Paul did talk about Ram and his music a lot at that time. He, he does an, an interview with Life Magazine, and this is a quote from him about his music. He says, I can't really describe what direction I'm going in musically because it's ever changing. And that's what it's all about. 
I have my personal influences and they come from everywhere, from age nothing to today. Sounds I heard on the radio, sounds I heard my father play on the piano, sounds I found myself in rock and roll, sounds that the group made. My music is all that, very personal, especially now that it's one person putting it all down instead of four. I do what I feel, make myself comfortable. It's a good job to have. So he's saying that really I'm fusing all that is me into a new sound. And he was talking about the fact that, I mean, he, this was specifically about ad-libbing in the studio, but he says that um, they, they didn't quite capture him. And then he tried to redo the ad-lib and he said, I was trying to repeat past glories and that doesn't work. Nothing in life really stays. And it's beautiful that they go. They have to go in order for the next thing to come. And so this is Paul McCartney's next period. That's the kind of thing Paul McCartney was saying at the time. And I think it's very wise. And um, Ram is so exciting because he had the time to grieve, to recover, to get angry and get cocky again, like to, to, to go the full cycle and to develop something new and find his own new voice. And that's what we have with Ram. Well said. Um, there are two things that I'd, I'd pick up on. Um, one is the, the 1971 context of its release. All of these negative views for which uh, John Landau seems to be the lightning rod. <laughs> um, uh, in some ways, I still shake my head at a lot of those and think, what album yeah. are you listening to? Yes, um, I agree. But, but if I want to be a little bit tougher on myself and maybe a little bit fairer. If I think about listening to Ram for the very first time, my experience of it was one of being surprised by yeah. things where some critics might have then put the record back in its sleeve and hastily tossed it aside. I found that strangeness intriguing and I wanted mm -hmm. to listen again. And the more I listened, um, the more I liked it. Um, but I think in terms of the head-scratching question, what, are, what album are these guys listening to? I think you articulated it really well in what you said about how Paul is continuing to innovate. He's going into yes. new places that he hasn't been to before. And when you first raised that a few minutes ago, I thought, isn't it interesting then that, that people should be so put off with Paul innovating and doing something new when that's what the Beatles always did. They should be used to it by now. And then I thought, actually, that maybe the difference is that when the Beatles did something new and uh, mold-breaking, it tended to be in a way that was directly connected to where the 60s zeitgeist was. Yeah, um, yeah. And when you said that Ram was not of its time and that that you know, John kind of had a, a, a jealous guarding of all of the zeitgeist for himself. Yeah. Um, yes. Then this is a case of where innovation and zeitgeist uh, are, at, are at different points. They're, yes. they're, they're kind of poles apart. And maybe that's what explains the poor reception and the fact that it took 35, 40, 50 years <laughs> for Ram to be celebrated. Yeah, that is an absolutely brilliant articulation of what I was saying the idea that the album and his innovations were not aligned with the zeitgeist is a really important insight. And I think Paul was a little bit off the trends and his timing was a little bit off throughout the 70s. 
That's right, yeah. You know, if you just look at the ideas and concepts that Paul and Linda were championing and the fact that they were creating a new way to be a rock star, it just wasn't aligned with this period of the rock god, you know? Yeah. And so that made him not particularly cool in the short term, although, you know, I think we think differently in the long term. It's surprising to me that all of these critics who had loved the Beatles and championed the Beatles and sort of revered Paul, they hear the album one time and they're like, I guess he's done, you know, that they didn't actually afford him more, you know, that they didn't trust him to bring something great to the table. That's what I find surprising. Like, maybe he's ahead of us. That's what surprises me. That's right. There's a, an arrogance in assuming that if you put on a Paul McCartney album in 1971, after everything that he has accomplished yes. with three other guys, yes, and if you don't like it, to then assume that the album must be crap, rather than thinking, maybe the problem is with me. Maybe Paul <laughs> knows something I don't. <laughs> right. I can't believe that Paul was the dominant force in Abbey Road and let it be. And for some reason, they're just like, lost his talent. You know what I mean? Rather than, oh, maybe he's taken a big leap forward. And I do think that the zeitgeist and the, the depositioning of Paul by the other three really does feed into this. Oh, absolutely. You know, that, 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 uh, this is where I think that the, the, the battle lines that were drawn um, really does play into this. I want to read something that um, I think is quite good. This is from Ruth and Martin's Album Club. Mm-hmm. Martin Fitzgerald did an excellent summary. I would highly recommend people read it. He did an excellent summary of what happened after the breakup of the Beatles. And he says this. An image is formed of McCartney as a sly operator, the control freak who took his ball because he couldn't get his own way. A long list of macho rock critics also pillory his domestic bliss in contrast to Lennon's status as king of the counterculture. History gets rewritten, battle lines are drawn. Lennon was the true genius, and McCartney the teacher's pet with an unhealthy obsession with vaudeville and classical middle eights. Most bizarre of all, though, a man who literally had more sex, drugs, and rock and roll than almost anyone somehow gets painted as a square. And then he said everyone reviewed the context and a genuinely great album was ignored. That kind of explains them, but again, it's curious that did he not earn their trust over the eight years, you know, that he was around? Yeah, I mean, I said earlier that I'm surprised when people talk about Ram in terms of an album with no tunes or no melodies on it. Yeah, I'm, e- yeah. I'm equally surprised if people listen to that album and say the, the, the portrait of the artist that emerges is of a straight or square individual, because <laughs> right. I think the opposite <laughs> is the case. Exactly, he, exactly. He, he's not Jerry Rubin or Tariq Ali. He's not part of that uh, underground. He's weirder, though. Yeah. He, no. He's very much his own man, but that man is not a straight or square individual. <laughs> That's exactly right. He's, he's so eccentric, and how that came off as the establishment. He wasn't playing it safe at all. So it's weird that they judged him by that. It, I guess they had been brainwashed. Happily, a bunch of the public ignored it. You know, that was the good news. Yeah. You know, that we're more willing. It's like with fashion. When a new fashion look comes out, 
a lot of people hate it. I hate bell bottoms. I hate skinny jeans. I hate whatever's coming out. But then some people do like it. You know, you start to see them around and it's like, it's been two years, but now I like them. So, Just you know? as they're starting to go out of fashion. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> My mind was just thinking about fashion, and someone had a good <laughs> had a good joke the other day. Um, it was it was like a, a baby boomer saying, um, "I like those jeans. Did you make all those rips yourself? Did you tear them all yourself?" Um, and the very quick retort back was, "Yes, I did. Just like you tore a hole in the ozone layer yourself." <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes, boomer millennial <laughs> battles. Now the battle is between Z and millennial. Actually, to tell you the truth. Oh right. Okay. <laughs> They've decided that um, boomers are not worth the argument anymore. <laughs> I don't feel like I belong in any of these categories because I think I'm I'm slightly too young to be a Gen Xer <laughs> and slightly too old to be a millennial. I just I, I belong nowhere. Yes. Well, I am a Gen Xer, and I also belong nowhere because nobody has ever remembered that we exist. Mm. So there you go. We are both floating in space and don't count. That's right. <laughs> Making up our identity for ourselves, just like Paul McCartney and Linda <laughs> McCartney like in 1970. McCartney. <laughs> exactly. So one of the biggest criticisms of this album is that it is always considered to be lightweight and meaningless. Those are the kinds of things that are said. It's kind of like, well, it's very melodic and crafted well, but it's ultimately lightweight and inconsequential and says nothing, which is always weird to me because can a melody not be deep? I think melodies and music on their own are. But beyond that, this is probably Paul's most open, emotionally vulnerable, transparent album. I don't think he was ever this open again. The one time where he's incredibly open, he's continually hammered even now with the same idea that it wasn't emotionally authentic. And I mean, yes, there is a, there is a layer of gloss and that may be because that's how Paul likes to do it. But I think in some ways that that is because he respects his audience and likes to make things universal too. Like it's not always about Paul and Paul knows that. Well, that's right. And as you say, Paul does prefer sometimes a layer of glossiness or, or artifice mm -hmm. or a mask. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think you'd agree with me if I said that sometimes the mask is what enables him to be revealing of himself. Exactly. That's a wonderful way to put it. I mean, I think once you get into the crazy world of Paul McCartney, you know that he does that. And I think, it, like you said, it allows him to be open and vulnerable. And it's not always logical. You get glimpses of how he's feeling. And I think that it's true and honest, and he is vulnerable in that way. Yeah, that's right. I bring this up specifically in the context of this because John's album is praised for being so emotionally raw. Mm. And Paul's is criticized for not being emotionally raw. And I think it is. Yes, I agree. Paul put a little layer and somehow that managed to disguise all of his feelings to every critic who ever listened to it between 1970 and 2000. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll confine my comments to... Um discussions of specific songs. I could go okay. on and on at length about how I agree and exactly where I see evidence <laughs> of that, but we'll, we'll get onto that. Right, right, right. We will get into that. To summarize, Duncan, why do you like this album just as a whole? Like, and how would you describe it? Oh, it's, it's a difficult question because sometimes I feel like um, any great work of art 
doesn't give up its mysteries so easily that you can put it into a, you know, oh, a, right. a pithy little Absolutely. sentence. Um, yes. I remember talking to you before. I can't remember if it was a recorded discussion of ours or not. But the example I gave was the Mona Lisa and how you could look at that painting and you could say it's got something to do with the slightly coy face smile that she has. That's what's so intriguing about the painting. But yes. then if you cut the smile out and reproduce it 500 times on a large canvas, the painting is not 500 times better. You've ruined the painting. So to yeah. kind of extract things that you like about Ram can, can be a really difficult exercise. But I'll have a go. Um, yes. <laughs> there's a quote I like. You, you, you were mentioning um, somebody's review of Ram before. Sorry, I can't remember the name of the two people that you said. Ruth and Martin. Ruth and Martin. Um, yes. There's a, a pitchfork review of Ram that contains a line that I really like, and it, it may be slightly misleading. The line in question is, Ram is an album that whistles to itself. And you'd think that that is a way of emphasizing its whimsical, eccentric, homespun qualities. I yeah. think that those are present, but they are not the only things that are really important to right. Ram. I think in order for an album to whistle to itself, it needs to have a kind of a bedrock of musicianship and professionalism and ambition to it. Yeah. And that's definitely part of Ram as well. For me, yeah, it's yeah. the kind of combination of the two. It's Paul McCartney yeah. singing a kind of karaoke version of his own album as the album is playing. Um, and mm -hmm. I love that. I mean, he would talk in the 1971 Life interview about how he thinks his music is best when it has hard and soft qualities right, together, yeah. not too cute. Um, and that's another way of talking about why I like Ram so much. It has some sweet elements. It also has some very sour elements. It has angry and it has very happy. It has homespun, but it also has very slick and very professional. And I think he mixes them both perfectly. He doesn't always do it in the same way. Sometimes yeah. the album will veer from a very pretty song to a very ugly song. Um, yeah. Other songs will contain elements of both simultaneously, but it's Paul knowing exactly how and where and when to combine these ingredients together that makes it the most intriguing and um, endlessly re-listenable of Paul McCartney's yes. albums. That is probably what makes the album so intriguing is the tension yeah. that exists. There's so much sweetness. There's so much anger. Weirdly, the critics only saw the sweetness. I know. And I don't know how they missed the anger that it sits right there underneath it. I think the overall takeaway from the album is joyous and energetic. Like ultimately that it's a Paul McCartney album. It's going, it to, it's going to work towards a positive. <laughs> <laughs> it does. And you feel elevated at the end of it. Yeah. You mentioned the Pitchfork review, and the point that really stuck out to me was this one. The author says, what a lot of people album on Uncle Albert at Bro Halsey and everywhere else on the album is cloying cuteness. But it turns out you can say a lot of things, things like go fuck yourself, everything is fucked, and even let's go fuck, honey, with a big dimpled grin on your face. And um, he says that the joy of paying close attention to Ram is gradually discovering that Paul was humming darker things under his breath than it seemed. So sorry, I love this because it's key to Ram. There is so much more going on than it would seem on the surface. 
the electricity and energy of the album comes from the tension, the bitter and the sweet. And I think this clash is exactly reflective of Paul's own situation at the time, which is why it's authentic, you know? He's both frustrated and heartbroken about the end of the Beatles and is amazed by the joy of his new life, as Pitchfork calls it, his newfound domestic bliss. And all of these things are present on this album, which is probably why it's so alive. Yes. You sort of do get this sense. There does seem to be this, like, I've gone through something terrible and I have found myself in this new land and it's amazing. Sure. One of the things that makes the album a little safer is that one gets the sense, or I get the sense, that Paul is through the worst. Yes. He's not sitting in his heartbreak. He's saying, you did this to me. I am heartbroken, but I got through it. And I am back and better than ever. And wow, somehow I ended up with the love of my life. Yeah, um, I don't want to get too uh, left field here, but there's a, a Peter Carey book about the life of the um, English Renaissance poet John Donne. Um, and he talks about a, a poem. <laughs> bing, bing, bing. This is Professor sorry, Duncan. Sorry, if, if you don't want me to talk about this stuff, don't have no, me on no, the podcast. No. <laughs> um, of course, please. He, he talks about a poem, um, which is it has, has some quite dark lines in it. And Peter Carey um, writes about this poem as so dark, so depressed, that John Donne must have been virtually suicidal as he was writing it. And I thought, that is so wrong. Suicides write notes, you know, yeah. gloomy Monday. They, they don't sit there and, and work out this incredibly complex, intricate masterpieces. You can only do that if you have the, the concentration and the energy to focus on creating something. The, the reason I raise all of that is to link it back to your point about how Paul is probably through the worst of it. Mm -hmm. uh, in order to be able to make Ram, which is an album that, you know, is about the joys of newly discovered family life and, yeah. you know, the, the tortures of a really awful breakup, um, you need to have gotten used to the first one and been through the yeah. worst of the other uh, yeah. in order to do that. Yeah, you don't do it as it's viscerally happening to you. It would suggest that John was probably through it too because he mm. wrote sort of a harrowing album. So maybe... John was through it, which to some extent, I think he was. Like, I think he was writing these songs after he had gone through. His primal therapy? Yeah, his primal therapy. Although I don't think that fixed him in any way. Um, no. You know, I think it just sort of brought up a lot of that trauma that he then sort of worked through. I still think that Paul and John are in slightly different places. Like, John is sitting in his feeling, whereas I get the sense that Paul is further, and, and that is connected to the Pitchfork review mm. where, you know, he talks about that in some ways, Ram is kind of scary because it's one thing if they're fighting. It, it's another when Paul is like, you hurt me, but I'm okay. I made it through, you know, and and I'm happier than ever, which is kind of what he's doing with Ram often. Yeah, you that's know? right. I think the, 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 the bit you're talking about to paraphrase it, it's something like, um, it's it's scary when your parents are still fighting, um, yes. but in a, in a way, it's 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 more troubling when they cease fighting and one of them moves out. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so ultimately, to me, it makes it a little bit of a safer ride. I, I don't mean creatively safer. I just mean when you're listening, 
there is joy and humor throughout it. Yeah, you know? absolutely. It's one of the things I like most about Ram is its humor. I like it when Paul lets his freak flag fly. And, and <laughs> well, he's flying it's, everywhere. It's, yeah, it's pummeled <laughs> by the wind. <laughs> also, something that you were saying before is that there is so much professionalism. The, yeah. the, everything's so fully developed, and yet it has this recklessness, like the inclusion of Linda's voice is done on purpose. And, you know, like when you when you look at, say, the difference between a luxury product and a premium product is always that the best, best luxury products, the most expensive, are often flawed or they have something very unique to them yeah. because it shouldn't be replicable. And so Paul adding the human element, the slight mistakes, the slight atonal or dissonant harmonies He's making it unique. Mm. Um, you remind me of something that Paul said. I think it was in 2012 when he was promoting the archive release of Ram. And he, he told a story about being somewhere near the, the Mexico border and mm -hmm. some you know strange hippie individual walking up and wordlessly handing him a Hessian bag. And Paul like looks inside this <laughs> hempen homespun bag, and there's just like a loose record in there, no cardboard sleeve, nothing. <laughs> uh, it's obviously something he wanted Paul to hear, and and Paul tells this story as an example of what he thinks the sound of Ram is, um, and. I really like the story because it, it does emphasize there is a hempen homespun quality to some of this album's aesthetic. But you also need to remember the record inside the bag, which is the product of a yes. great deal of professionalism. It's just because it's inside the Hessian bag, you don't see it as clearly. And that's the thing is Paul McCartney was at the top and this is his artistic choice mm. is to cover it in the hemp bag. Yeah. And that is what we should be looking at as his artistic statement. This is why I take it to what did Paul McCartney as artist choose to do in his next act? He decided that he wanted a little bit more dissonance. He decided he wanted more personality and homespunness. Mm. And, and, and that's interesting, not just in context of what John was doing, just in terms of his contribution to music at that time. So anyways, that's, uh, that's why we love Ram. Um, so maybe we should actually start talking about, well, <laughs> I don't want to tease you because uh, we're, not, <laughs> we're not quite at Ram because we just talked about the fact that this is an album where a lot of his biography plays into it. So I think it is actually worth it to talk about what's going on with Paul at this time because it's quite significant. Sure. The other side of that um, Hessian bag anecdote. I remember him talking about that in the context of his design team and them saying, what do you want this archive edition to look like? And he describes this Hessian bag with a record stuck in it. And he said, can we do that? <laughs> and the team had to explain why there were so many problems with actually doing that. I love that. You know, like we always hear about the like hundred monks on a hill yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of thing. You know what I mean? But that's kind of like Paul doing that too. That is probably the best articulation of Ram I've ever heard. So <laughs> thank you, Paul. Yeah, Paul can be sometimes very frustrating when he's talking about his own work. Occasionally, he puts it better than anybody else. This is our quick summary. Most of you know this. Anybody who's listening to this podcast is probably deeply, deeply into the Beatles, but um, I think we have to do our take on it anyways. 
On April 10th, 1970, Paul puts out his um, self-interview for the press. And that basically results in the Paul Quits the Beatles headline and things spin out, out of control. So that effectively marks the end of the Beatles. Uh, whether he meant to or not is a different discussion, but he tries to walk it back. And, you know, I just talked to Ray Connolly and Ray Connolly talks about the fact that Paul was desperate to meet him, tell his side of the story, like, look, I really didn't mean to do that. I was the only one who wanted to stay in the Beatles. But of course, the story had a sort of a life of its own, and he was sort of seen as the villain. You know, Connolly talks about the fact that he went from being the most beloved figure in the world to its most despised and reviled and enemy number one, you know, because he broke up the Beatles. And he was kind of positioned as, um, like it was seen as like a self-centered, I'm better, you know, sort of a, an egotistical move on Paul's yeah. part or an egocentric, you know? Yeah. I'm going solo. But anyway, so he was kind of put in this horrible situation where the world hates him. And so Paul, Linda, Heather, and Mary flee again to Scotland. And it's interesting because I, again, talked to Ray about Paul's mindset at that time. And he said that Paul actually, <laughs> other than being the most hated person in the world and the stress that accompanies that, he was in a fairly good state of mind. And so I think that when we talk about Scotland, I notice that there's a lot of confusion about Scotland. It's just seen as this massive, like, two-year period that Paul was in Scotland. Unable to rise his, from, from <laughs> exactly. bed any day of the week except <laughs> to pour scotch down his throat. <laughs> and it was like Linda who pulled him out of bed and whipped him into shape. That seems to have been relegated to a period in the fall of 1969 Yeah, when they were there for a month. And, you know, it sounds like he went through a pretty rough period mm you know, really crashed and drank too much and took too many drugs and freaked Linda out. And she had gave him a talking to and, and got him working on music. And then the combination of those gave Paul a light at the end of the tunnel in that he could see that he could work again, you know, that he had a future. And he, in this life interview, he talks about the fact that it was such a big turn on for him, that it was so exciting. So, you know, at this point, a few months after that, he's put out his album and I think that he has the spark of excitement that he can do something. And then they go to Scotland. And so I think this is their real Scottish period. You know, this is where Paul becomes gentleman farmer Paul, yeah. where we get all the beautiful pictures of them. This is where I think Paul and Linda's life starts to substantially change. Mm. You know, like it was pretty urban. It was London. They escaped to Scotland in the fall. But this is the time where they actually make their home. And they really do for the next five or six years, yeah, you know. Yeah. This is important because, again, I, I can't imagine the first little while that he's there that he's feeling great. You know, he's battling with the Beatles. He's now seen as the, the man that broke up the Beatles. He must be feeling like it's so unfair. I was the only one that wanted to keep them together. Yeah. But, you know, his his album did do well. It, it got pretty decent reviews. And so he knows at least that, you know, he can do it. Mm -hmm. And um, so this is the real Scottish period. And I personally think that it was really beneficial. And he talks about this as giving him some space to heal, to recover, to get some perspective. And I personally think that it also gave him the ability to get angry, you know, to go from sort of the grief of the fall to get a little bit angry at 
the guys mm -hmm. and the situation they're in. And I think that was a good thing. And that's sort of what you start to see permeate Ram, part of Ram. And he also talks about when he was really depressed, he was he would shake and he could, he had so much within him that he couldn't express. And then you see in this period that he, he it just like flows out of him. He, he writes, you know, 30 plus songs. It's like he's found an outlet at this point where he's going through it. And this is sort of like a real process for him when he's up there. Yeah, I think um, somewhere as remote as High Park Farm on the Mull of Kintyre, especially in 1970, there are gonna be very few distractions um, yeah. from what's going on inside your own head. And so it's natural that that stuff sort of looms even larger, the good and the bad. Um, right, right. And right. yeah, I, I can see um, Paul's mind, you know, preying on all of the horrible stuff that's happened to, to him recently, um, but also, you know, embracing a lot of the, the way out of that darkness uh, with Linda yes. and, and the family and... This is kind of what I mean when I talk about the, the saltiness and the sweets, the, the soft right. and the hard of Ran, the, these elements it comes out of his life, which is, which is kind of extreme in both directions uh, at the yes. time he's writing these songs. That's right. That This is an important period for Paul and Linda, whereas, you know, you look at the, the early pictures of their marriage and they look very affectionate. And then, of course, everybody <laughs> thinks that Paul and Linda are this epic couple because she came through for him, which is, I just think that's the way that Paul tried to elevate her in the public eye, you know, is that she really came through for, for him and he was happy. But it seems like at this period, this is where they defined as a couple, like they really fused in terms of this is what we want our life to be. This is where the shared love, I mean, I think they they understood they had a shared love of nature, but I think that this is where this like devotion and, you know, understanding that their strength comes from nature, it's sort of this whole belief system develops from this period, yeah. you know? Yeah, I think that the, the way they think about nature, the way it gets almost spiritualized is so yes. important to this album. That's right. That's right. And, you know, and Paul talks about this being a golden period. Both Paul and Linda do. Paul talks about this as being sort of the period that had the golden glow for them. And then Linda talks about that this is, you know, some of the happiest times of their lives. But another thing that Paul talks about a lot specifically about this period is freedom. And it's interesting because the way the story is told right now, it's George didn't have enough freedom. And so he, you know, he was finally free to make his album. And that John needed to break free from the Beatles to become the artist that he was. And yet the person then talks about freedom all the time. Like one would think that Paul McCartney did not need freedom because he wanted to stay with the Beatles. But he's the one that actually talks about freedom the most. And it's such a deep theme in all of his work going forward. Mm. So potentially Paul didn't even realize how constrained he was, you know, at the time when he was deep. Like, I think that maybe at this period is the time where he was able to recognize that there was more to life that, wow, I was very, very contained there. Um, but here are some of some of the quotes from it. He says that they escaped to Scotland. And then he said, from then onward, it was to be a question of living your own life 
which was the first real turn on for me in a long time. And it coincided with my meeting Linda. And he said that um, when they went there, you know, that, that people made fun of them and said that they lived in a hippy dippy commune. And he said, well, it was a bit, but you know what? We experienced a freedom, absolute freedom. I could make any music I wanted. Linda could take any picture she wanted and we could live how we wanted. We just made it up as we went along from nothing. And I think that's a really important statement. And, and it's very um, anti-establishment, you know, that Paul and Linda really said, we're gonna live the way that we wanna live. Now it wasn't necessarily counterculture either, but it was really about, we're gonna live by our own values you know yeah and, I, it almost yeah. makes me um want to go a little bit back further in time remember that story paul tells about having been in the studio all through the night going and getting like maybe an hour or two sleep and then heading back into abbey road again and seeing this guy you know uh enjoying a lazy sunday watering geraniums on his balcony <laughs> and feel like looking through the window of his car thinking who's got it right me or him like and and feeling a little bit trapped by the success and the weight of expectations and the engine or the machine that the beatles have become and it's no no coincidence that the version of freedom that he he kind of identifies with is is one linked to geranium something natural and yes. organic um, yes. and you know wanting to be able to make music or not as the case may be as you know as it strikes him that's really important that he is trapped by the expectations and i think that's something that maybe the critics and people reacted to at this time too is that there's almost a defiance from paul and linda that mm. they're like we're not gonna be who you want us to be paul's like i'm i've done that you loved me. I'm not doing it anymore. Now it's we're living for us. Mm -hmm. And you get this sense that we're not conforming to your expectations anymore, which again was radically brave, but it wasn't the expected brave. John and Yoko were much more the expected counterculture brave. And again, neither is better than the other. Do you think that part of the reason why rock criticism or the counterculture reacts violently against Paul and Linda in this time, is that they sense that Paul and Linda are doing things for themselves um, and they resent that? Maybe there is a sense of, we don't give a fuck what you guys think. Mm. Sorry, I know you want us to be cool, but we don't really care. And th there is a bit of a, you don't matter. There, there's a bit of an arrogance. Mm to their point of view if you're in showbiz. Yeah. You know, like we just, we're doing it our ways and I'm so friggin' famous and talented and that I don't care. I'm gonna live on this like rundown farm and show up and put out Mary Had a Little Lamb and you're still gonna fucking love me. And even if you say it's crap, people are still gonna love me. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. Like there, there is an arrogance to it. Mm. They don't have to play the game.
Holland to kind of close the doors a little bit and say, no, this is our life. Mm. I don't know. I think there is something to that that they sense. Yeah, that's right. Because you know the the vitriol is so surprising and it seems so at odds with the music when you hear it separated by fifty years of context from that. Yeah. That you, yeah. you can only think that yeah that. There's some sort of resentment or frustration in these reviews that 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 must be so angry or up or upset with something <laughs> that Paul McCartney is is done or continuing to do. Right, right. Like, were you really that upset that he just moved to Scotland and was living on a farm? Like, that was what got you so angry. But it's somehow they couldn't even see that. They couldn't see that Paul was actually hippy dippy. For some reason, he became the man. Mm. You know, I, maybe it's just the effectiveness of John and Yoko and Klein and George and Ringo all being on the same page. I don't, I don't know. But I think that you're right to say that, like, I think that's one of the things that pissed Wenner off is he couldn't get into Paul's house. Mm. He, Paul wouldn't play his game. Yeah. And so he went back to the, you know, he left in a huff. There's a bit of arrogance to that too. Paul's like, nah, don't care, you know? Well, then I'm and... going to make you pay for that. Exactly, exactly. And there's actually another line from Paul where he, he talks about going and chopping <laughs> chopping down trees when he wasn't supposed to, sort of like just running out with an axe for their Christmas tree and going and cutting down some, somebody's oh, tree. Yes. And he said that I just, I didn't care because I was my own man. Mm. But there is so much excitement, I think, in terms of coming into who he is and finding out who he is and finding out who they were as a couple. And I think that's why Linda's presence on this album is so important because again, if we're thinking about Paul McCartney as artist, his first act was with the Beatles. This act, Linda is very much a part of it. Whether or not she's a major contributor to the writing of the songs, she's very much a contributor to the mindset and the view of the world that he had. You know? Absolutely. And the, in the, the sound of the album, the achieved product, whatever you want to call it, yeah, she's yeah. essential to it. Yeah, exactly. And so um, he did have the opportunity to get through the worst of it. And then he, you see him working through it with all the sounds that he wrote, you know, seems to have emerged somewhat joyous there's a lot of joy in the the album and you can see from the photos that there was very joyous times on the farm but at the same time it's not like apple and the problems with apple went away we do know at this time paul is trying to get out of the beatles he's trying to get out of apple mm. and asking to be released from his contract and you know john is playing games uh, paul wrote John, like a 20-page letter saying, I need to get out of this contract. And John sends him back a postcard saying, why how? how. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Which one can imagine would have been a nightmare to deal with. And, you know, you've got George Harrison saying in the press that once we get our albums out, everybody's going to get back together. It's all going to be okay. And hmm. Derek Taylor at this time is saying, you know, if if Paul came back and asked John to do it again, he probably would. And so as much as right now we like to take the breakup of the Beatles in April as being a done deal, I don't think it was at the time. No, no, You know, I. that there were many opportunities for them to get back together in the next little while. And I think there was an openness. And interestingly, I think that the one that actually went through the depression first and sort of emerges from it is Paul. And he seems to have accepted first mm. the fact that it is 
you know, I, I don't think he liked it, but I think he's accepted it at some point that, okay, I'm going to move onwards, you know? Yeah. The bittersweetness coming into it again. The yeah, reluctant yeah. acceptance. Yeah. The reluctant acceptance, but acceptance nonetheless, exactly, yeah. you know? And so he's trying to just get out of it, get over it, like go onto his own thing. He meets with George. Just to give some a timeline, they go from April until the... I don't know, the beginning of September, they're in Scotland. This is when he's writing to John, John sending him postcards. George is working on his album. John and Yoko are in therapy this whole time. And John is starting to write songs for Plasticono Band. Then Paul and Linda, they go to France for part of the month in September. And then they go to New York. So that is what this period is about. Now, often... People say that Paul is fueled by All Things Must Pass and Plasticono Band. But actually, when he goes there, uh, those aren't out. out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So those aren't out yet. So this is Paul. And the amazing thing to me is that Paul has just done McCartney, put out, he's released McCartney mid-April. Mm. This is October, like five months later, and he's got 30 new songs, and he's going to record it again. Yeah. So, you know, incredibly prolific, you know, as opposed to when he was talking about he had so much in him that he couldn't let out. Apparently, it all came out. And now he wants to do a new album and put forward a, a new perspective. Yeah. And so that that takes us to the Ram period. Yeah, there's just like two very short uh, little biographical points that I'd make. Mm -hmm. So it's on the 4th of October that the McCartney family board this boat and sail for New York. And it's on the 7th of October that Columbia Studios is booked and things start happening for Ram. And when you consider that this is like a, an Atlantic voyage in between the 4th and the yep. 7th, they waste zero time. So that they arrive with a very strong sense of purpose. This is not That's an album right. made on a whim. They yeah. yeah, and and this is the other side of Ram, the the, the side that isn't homespun or whimsical or right. or too organic, but actually quite purposeful and ambitious. And it starts from from day one. Twenty nine demos, for goodness sake. That's an excellent point. That they come very determined. And and another thing that I think is really interesting is that they don't come and talk to a producer. They don't have a team. They come very determined with a very, very strong point of view that they are going to forge a new sound and they're going to do it their way. Mm. Paul is the last thing. Sometimes he's positioned in this period as a diva. Yeah. And he is absolutely the opposite of a diva. He is the biggest musician in the world. And he's auditioning his own musicians in basements. Mm. You know, he doesn't need to be doing that. He doesn't need to be producing his own album, but he's doing that. Linda's right there with him. According to um, Eric, the Norwegian, he said that Linda was the really tough one pushing Paul. Like you were going to make, this is Paul McCartney, individual artist. Yeah. She didn't even want him talking about the Beatles. Like she had him on a track, not because I think she cared. I'm sure because she thought this was important to him. So what's your second point? No, that was it. That was it. That, that, those were my, that was it? That was your only that point? That was my only point. <laughs> I have nothing left to contribute to this podcast. I have nothing to say about any of the songs. Oh, no. Okay. Just to end with a timeline. So they go to New York. They are in New York recording for October, November. They go back to Scotland for Christmas. And then they come back to New York in January. 
During this time, Paul's trying to get out of his contract. He is doing all of this work on RAM while he's having business meetings mm-hmm. with, okay, how do we get out of this? And ultimately, he makes the decision that he has to sue the Beatles. And, you know, that, that happens on the last day of 1970. But they come back to New York in early January. Ringo makes the point that he he's very confused. When he receives his writ, he's very confused and, and says that like oh, something must have happened. Something must have happened between George and Paul because we were all supposed to meet in New York in January. And so we don't know what happened. We do know that Paul and George met when they were in New York yeah. and had apparently a very bad meeting. And that resulted in Paul saying, I went off the label and George saying, you'll stand the fucking label. Harry Krishna. Harry Krishna. Exactly. And so that ended poorly. We know that John did his interview with Rolling Stone in December and the first Part of it came out in December. So Paul's also got that. I don't know if any of these contributed to him making that decision. Uh, I have heard Alan Cozen say that he thinks the decision was made earlier. Mm-hmm. Even if it was made earlier, Paul was probably holding out. Like there's a reason he does it in the last year of the year. Yeah. I got to assume he's holding out hope that they will be able to come to a more amicable. Yeah. If I'm Paul McCartney in December of... 1970, and I read the first part of Lennon Remembers, I'd probably yeah. call John Eastman and say, press the go button. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're done. Between his meeting with George, you'll stay on the fucking label, mm. Harry Krishna and John Lennon Remembers, I think that he'd be like, yeah, it's a go. Yeah. But I have to assume he didn't do it earlier because he was hoping that they'd be able to resolve it more amicably. You know, Sure, he's always talked about it as a, as a bit of a last resort. Yeah, he says it yeah. in the life interview. He spent the entire summer toing and froing uh, about whether this is something he should do or not. Um, so I don't think it was, yeah, like making RAM, it was not something done on a whim. Right, right. So they come back in January and they are recording again in January and February in New York. And he and Linda go back for a couple of important meetings to appear uh, on, in the first day of the trial against um, the other three. And also for a, I think it was for a Len Mack meeting it was another another meeting it sounds extremely stressful Mm. like maybe the the music was just a release for him because it's weird that so much joy came out in the midst of this incredibly stressful period yeah i think a lot of ram is musical therapy for paul mccartney uh that that's underplayed i think in some of what's said about it at least on podcasts and so i want to reiterate how much he's working through his demons in song I agree. He is working through a lot, both when the writing of the songs and then the performing of songs. And and Denny Sywell says that's what he felt like they were doing for him, mm-hmm. you know, is helping him work through this. And then he goes to L.A. They go to L.A. and they spend a couple of months there finishing off the album, doing all the final touches. They do the life interview there. They finish the album cover there. That is where Paul and Linda spend time with Eric, the Norwegian Wangberg, who does the final mixing of the album. And I had the opportunity to speak to Eric. And so he provided some very important insight to this period. So that's it. We are finally at the album. First things first, Ram, the title. Uh, What do you think of the title? I think sometimes Ram as a male sheep, the, the symbolism of that either gets ignored or it gets downplayed and i think it's actually really important to the album's uh, aesthetic nature because it 
we were talking earlier when we were setting up the context of the album about how Paul and Linda have started this new approach to life from a tabula rasa. And in some ways, that life is more intuitive or more instinctive. And it's connected both to the nature that they're in Scotland, but also the idea of what that nature represents to them. And I think all of this feeds into the symbolism of the ram. Then Paul has talked about how he likes the fact that it was male, which I I find slightly odd because I don't hear ram as a very male album. It's not dripping with testosterone. I think it's more like the interplay between male and female is what I hear on Ram, but I do hear an idea of nature put forward that connects to the idea of the Ram, the male sheep. I mean, it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that it's around about this time, Paul and Linda choose to go vegetarian and that decision is directly connected to the sheep on their estate. And when Paul says things in the life you like, when we're in Scotland, we plant stuff, vegetables, we'll leave them there and at their own volition, they will push up. And not only will they push up and grow into something, but it will be good to eat. To me, that's an yes. all-time thing. That's fantastic. How clever. He's talking about an entire approach to life and an entire approach to his and Linda's new creativity. Uh, And I see some of that wrapped up in what Ram as a title means. Would you agree? I I absolutely agree. Ram is a fantastic title, first of all. I mean, it's so unusual. Actually, I was thinking about the fact that the next album is also called Wildlife. They are really clear about that this is who they are. This is their inspiration. And world right now is is nature. George is so connected to the spiritual worlds and meditation and Eastern philosophy. And, And John is so connected to truth. But somehow Paul isn't as connected to to nature as he probably should be. I think the reason why he uses the word male, we're talking about in old stereotypical terms of male, there was an element of driving, going onwards, pushing onwards. Yeah. There's an energy about a, a, a ram that is yeah. about to fight or butt heads. There is an arrogance about that. And I think that maybe that's all summarized in the word ram. It's an animal. Yeah. And this is their world right now. Another connotation of ram, as a maybe as more of a verb than a noun, is, you know, repeated, punchy, powerful, memorable, yeah. active. Forward. I think it is. Yeah. The active and moving forward is something that, that, you know, I think he liked. And the funny thing is that Paul is such a ram, like it's so perfect for him, you know, just in terms of being so incredibly determined, yeah. head down, I am going to make this work. Yeah. I will butt heads with you, but I will move onwards. You know what I mean? That's right. You're headstrong in a way that, that is as linked to maybe some of his flaws or some of his his better angels. Yeah, I totally agree. And and I think some of this, you know, purposeful forward drive, the fact that it's RAM in all caps, has as much to do with the need to do that because of mounting pressures from without. The the need for the McCartneys to close ranks and push forward because the enemies are at the gates. Don't you think that's part of the pressure? Absolutely. I get a sense that it's Paul and Linda against the world right now. You know, Paul talks about feeling like he was being pushed down and the, the fact that he needs to be the ramp to push forward to you know, be vindicated and to succeed uh, is definitely all in that idea. And, you know, if you look at the Ram as mythical creature, it's this idea of boldness, new beginnings, new paths and power. And those are all very appropriate for where they're at. Absolutely. I was really interested to read that 
another way of looking at the word ram is that it derives that and the English word ray and the English word radiance and the English word ram all come from a Sanskrit root, my OED tells me. Ra, which means to radiate. And the another Sanskrit word ma, meaning myself. And when you combine them in the word ram, it means something like the light from my heart. And I, I, I remember you telling me at one point that ram is a word that's, that's often used in transcendental meditation. And I yeah. think it has something to do with the, the pathway from noise to silence, getting from like a normal state and into a meditative state. Am I right about that? Well, yeah, that's one of the things that when I started Transcendental Meditation, you know, the word that they teach you is, it's spelled Ram, but it's pronounced more Ram. Um, and, yeah. you know, being a big Ram fan, I thought that's really interesting. And Paul would have been aware of it. It's one of the mantras, but it's the mantra they give to you as the basic mantra before you get your own. And I have to assume he would have known this. And yeah, it's considered to be one of the post, most powerful mantras. You know, there's different definitions of it. I saw it as the sacred energy that supports the entire universe, or the vibration is a one-syllable word that represents the all-pervasive energy, which mm. holds and supports everything. In other words, it stands for something really powerful, like mm. a powerful energy, which if Paul had some sense of this, which I think in all the teachings they had in India, he probably would have been aware of. I think it might have just reinforced this as being the right word, the right title for it, you know? Yeah. There's a, the spiritual element of it. Rum is a vibration. Yeah. And I, I like the idea. I think it, it suits the album for that the Sanskrit connotations of the word to be connected to drawing energy from within. Uh, mm -hmm. It's that idea of, you know, pressure and you and me, babe, against the world. It's almost like a yes. spiritualized version of that. And it also, I think, you could connect it to the, the pantheistic way in which they think about nature as something spiritual, almost religious. That is their spiritual that's his magic. You yeah. Know? I, I was reading, it was Craig Brown's book, One, Two, Three, Four. And mm -hmm. there was a, a bit in it that jumped out at me. And it was um, Paul talking about how when he was first starting to meditate, something that helped him still his mind was the mental image of a country farmer leaning over a stile with a straw in his mouth. And I thought, of course, this guy connects meditation, spiritualism, and nature. Yes. He's doing yes. it from way before he, he's you know with Linda and they're living in the country. Yeah, it was always there. It's a beautiful thing, really. And then there is also the secondary meaning of his name, you know, which comes in the song Ram On. But I think that also that a piece of that is in this title. And it, I find it really interesting that Paul calls his first album McCartney. Like if this is all about Paul finding his voice and coming into his own as artist or his new version of Paul McCartney, the artist, that the first is his statement, McCartney. I'm not Lennon McCartney. I'm not the Beatles. I'm McCartney. Yeah. This is me. And then this sort of harkens back to the younger performer. Mm. And I find that really important too. Yeah, I think you're right about Ramon. I think you're absolutely right to say that it's a song that looks back further in time than, you know, at least the uh, the brilliant white hot success of the Beatle years. He's connecting to elements of his individuality right. or himself that predate right. the Beatles. That's what I feel like he's doing with Ramon is going back to who he was 
and finding that person. And again, the McCartney without the Lennon there. And he talks about that, how scary and how exciting it is to be finding out who they are. You know, it's like him saying that he didn't care. He was his own man. That's, he found that really exciting. Yeah. None of the other Beatles did that. Like John didn't come out and say, he didn't call his first album Lennon or John. George didn't call it Harrison. You know, they didn't call their albums by their name. And Paul's was much more of an, uh, uh, an artistic statement. This is me. Except for Ringo. I think it's number three. I think we have Sentimental so. Journey and so. what, yeah. what he calls Bocoops of Blues. And then you have Ringo. But I've read interviews where he's also talked about it as his first album. So part of him wants to discount those <laughs> first two exercises. As, I, I get it because... Both of them are made when the, the future of the Beatles is very uncertain. So he probably thinks of them as side projects. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you think Paul is the only one at this point who feels like he's out? I agree with you when you say that of all of them, he is the one who has accepted it the most. Yes. And it's counterintuitive, but one of the reasons why I think that is John's statement that was that was transcribed by Paul in the Life interview. And he said, uh, I, I want a divorce too. In the Life interview from 1971, Paul recalls the conversation with John where he phones him. I think John's yep, at yep. Arthur Janoff's clinic. Paul says he wants out of the Beatles too. And he yes. quotes John as saying, that's two of us who have accepted it mentally then. And I think yes. part, part of me thinks John's asserting that's both of us, but but he's surprised at Paul doing it. And, and in a way, it's like, it's almost proof that Paul's doing it more than him. Do you know what I mean? Well, he says that later, right? He says that it, when Paul said it, it made him feel funny. Yeah. 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 I think it's massive when Paul does that. I think that Paul took him off, off guard when he said that, because the fact that Paul could leave, I think turned the tables completely on John. Mm. So all of a sudden he's upset that he's being left because like, John seems to feel like he was the left party for the rest of his life. Yeah. Even though it's not entirely true, no matter how much he asserts later, he seems to be hurt. Okay. So we've gone through the title that brings us to our first song oh. and what a song. Too many people. say about this song, Diana Erickson? I, I think it's a fantastic opening. Paul comes out swinging. He starts off defiant. He talks about how he had so much inside and couldn't express it. And it's kind of like here he's ready to settle some scores and say his piece. It's interesting because when you hear about this time, it's kind of like Paul was depressed and there is nothing about this start that makes him sound sad or depressed or wounded. That's true. That's very true. You know, or cowed in any way. It's high energy, defiant. He's like, let me get this off my chest. 
I had this fantasy that this podcast would begin with me asking you a very specific question about this song. And I'm not going to mention names, but there is one podcast that is uh, partly about RAM, and it begins with too many people playing. And then one of the hosts of the podcast saying, what was he thinking? taking John Lennon on like that. Don't you know that when you throw up a rude gesture to John Lennon, he's going to come back at you with a tactical nuclear missile? And I wanted to ask, Diana, do you think that what Paul is doing in Too Many People is taking on John Lennon? Do I think he's taking on John Lennon? Is he picking a fight? Oh, that, okay. That's the, that's a different question. I feel like this is coming from his own deep place of anger. Like, you know, he starts this off with a bang. And so I feel like he's not starting a fight. He's making a point and he's angry. Obviously, Paul is aware that John is probably going to listen to this album yeah. and certain things are going to jump out at him. And he is being provocative in some of the things yeah. he does. And that would include some of the lyrics on too many people. But I think it's a mistake to think that is all Paul is doing in this song. I don't think it's just a poison pen letter to John Lennon. At another level, this is one of the examples of Ram as musical therapy for Paul McCartney, um, especially when I hear the way he plays those um, crazy guitar solos, um, the way he's whooping and shouting, especially at the end of the song. Yes. This is someone working through frustration, at least as much as someone making a calculated attack. Yeah, it's very cathartic. He's communicating, this is how I feel and what I think of you. And, you know, Paul has been pretty silent for a long time. I don't think he's trying to provoke a response or anything like that. I think he's determined to tell him what I think about you. Yeah, sure. You know, but there's a lot of things going on in this song, you know? Yeah, I think sometimes that lines like, uh, you took your lucky break and broke it into too many people preaching practices, they get so written about that it's almost like those lyrics are in neon and they obscure Every other lyric in the song, which just doesn't get talked about by comparison. I, no. I always want to make the point when people talk about too many people that the song is called Too Many People. It isn't called mm. I Hate My Former Ex-Partner or There's This One Shit Bag of a Guy. It's, hey. it's about too many people. It's not just about one person. Which, which in some ways is a huge insult to John because he's thrown in with all the other people. And the point is that... John is just part of the crowd that is doing this kind of, he's part of this counterculture movement. Yes, and you've raised it. I think a, a big part of this song is about frustration at what gets called underground in this song. And it's not just about somebody who took their lucky break and broke it in two. The song is just as upset or angry or frustrated at people's complacency. Uh, yes. All the lines about waiting for a lucky break on reaching for a piece of cake they criticize those who who feel like they're entitled to something and maybe that's directed at john lennon maybe it's not maybe it's directed at alan klein helping himself to beatles yeah or lawyers who are taking you know their hefty cut of things at this period of time but yeah i I always just want to make if nothing else with this song the point that john lennon is not the only person who gets criticized in this song (laughs) right right i'm pretty sure that george is probably thrown in there too there's something about the sound of it that makes me think that it's a little bit, you know, about George as well. This idea of preaching practices. I yeah. mean, you got to imagine Paul McCartney 
you know, he has to listen to how spiritual George is and how John and Yoko are people of peace. Meanwhile, that's not his experience. And he says that it certainly sounds incredibly hypocritical to him. Yeah. He is saying, you guys are full of shit. Mm. And my God, what a way to open an album with whatever he says. I don't care if it's piss off cake, piss off get, <laughs> piss off yeah. He's saying piss off. And it's just all those things that I stayed quiet about, they're coming out right now. And, you know, and good on him. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what it is either. There's a part of me that just wants to apply Occam's razor to the question of what Paul is singing in those opening bars. And so the simplest explanation might be the most accurate one. If one of the most repeated lines in the song is piece of cake, he may just be warming his way up into his vocal performance by writ on that line. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't hear piss off get. I probably hear that more than piss off cake, but you know, he does. Piss off cake doesn't make any sense. (laughs) (laughs) And he does these crazy vocals. Whatever he's saying, I do get the anger. So I get the intent Mm. of it. So he's kind of like stalking, like coming into this song hot. I always thought it was like this I get or something like I didn't hear the P, but I, I think I've come to conclude the same thing. It probably is piece of cake. I was thinking maybe this is Paul full of himself and it could be, he's like, this is a piece of cake for me. You know? Yeah. Very nice. clever. Yeah. I like that. There is a strutting element to it. As angry and frustrated, I think frustrated is a really great word because unlike John's, how do you sleep? This isn't particularly in my opinion, mean. And it's not like, I hate you. It's just, it's taunting, you know, like you're full of shit, man, is more what it is. But it's not like you're a terrible person or anything like that. And of course, Paul being Paul, he does put a layer of universality to it. He's talking about too many people, the movement. And I think that's true too. And I I like that personally. I like that level of respect. You know, I think some people see it as, Well, Paul's not being as blatant, but I personally like the fact that many people can tap into the frustration of this kind of situation of being told what to do. I mean, if one thing that Paul McCartney doesn't like, it's to be told what to do. Oh, yes, we know that. So so you can see him. He's really angry at the counterculture telling him. And that is true, too. Like there seemed to be in this point in time only one way to be cool. And it Mm. must have been incredibly frustrating to Paul. This is Paul rebelling against being told what to do by not just John and Yoko. It's this whole movement that has Mm. become repressive. And it's like, no, you must do things this way. This is the only way that you can be an artist right now. And yeah, certainly agree with what you're saying. I think if you think back to, say, 1967, when the Beatles appear as part of this worldwide satellite link-up and they're, yes. they're right there in the middle of the zeitgeist with yes. all you need is love. It's all yes. about openness, tolerance. And, ex- and yeah, I can see Paul being frustrated. Inclusiveness. Yeah, inclusiveness, that's right. Yes. And, and now the counterculture has gone underground in, in a way that 
almost calcifies into a new orthodoxy of you must do this, you can't do that. You know, which side are you on? You're with us, Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Tariq, Tariq Ali, yes, and John yes. Lennon, or you're one of the straights and squares. And, and I think in a way, Paul is almost making the point, I am still hippie, peace, and love. It's not me who's, who's gone square. Yes. It's you who've hardened yes. into this to this very judgmental version of what the left used to be. Right. Paul stayed hippy-dippy, peace and love, and yet he was deep positioned because he wasn't doing exactly what they wanted him to be doing at that time. He was positioned as the establishment. And that's such a hard place for Paul to be because Paul wants the inclusiveness. Yeah, His rebellion is against anybody who tries to tell him what to do. And that primarily being at this time, the counterculture that's on his ass for like, what you're doing is not cool, man. Yeah. I think, yeah, he's against rules that seem to exist rules, for their yes. own sake. Like he, he talks in the life interview about how he enjoys being thrown out of restaurants for wearing the wrong clothes. <laughs> it's another example of it. I think he, whether they're yeah. rules imposed by a right-wing establishment or yes. rules imposed by a, a left-wing underground, he bristles against them. Right. And that sort of feeds into this whole idea of Paul and Linda creating their own vision of their own kind of life. Now, they're very lucky that they're very wealthy. They can do that. So it's not like a replicable uh, lifestyle, but they are determined to do it their way. Paul thinks that's cool. The song is bemused, frustrated, um, and put off by how a left culture that it seems to have hardened into this new orthodoxy, which is militant, demanding, and um, intolerant in its own way. And I don't think that Paul is necessarily on board with that. That's right. Mm. I think there was this sense of, you better join in with this, otherwise you're not part of the cool crowd. And Paul probably is like, hey, I am the cool crowd. You know, there's probably a bit of frustration about, I, I don't need to be following at this point in my life. Yes. You know, I've earned the right to be leading or doing my own thing. And it has become quite repressive. Yes. Uh, the demand to pick a side is not something that Paul would, I think, ever respond well to. This is where it gets more personal. In 2001, to Mojo, he did admit, it was about John and Yoko, that a couple lines were for them. He says, I felt John and Yoko were telling everyone what to do, and I felt we didn't need to be told what to do. The whole tenor of the Beatles thing had been to each his own, freedom. Suddenly it was, you should do this. It was just a bit the wagging finger, and I was pissed off with it. That one got to be a thing about them. So he mentions his magic word, freedom. Like it feels yes. like they're taking his freedom away by saying, you need to live this way. That's right. But also in terms of the hypocrisy, I, there's quotes from Paul in 70 just saying, John and Yoko were these peace gurus, but they didn't seem particularly peaceful at that time. Mm. So to Paul being lectured about peace and love and John embracing the working class must have just been frustrating because he's like, well, you're not really acting towards me in a peaceful way. And John, you weren't exactly working class. So you can see how in some ways Paul is saying, I see you to John, which 
probably was part of what enraged John. Also, there is a rejection uh, of what John is doing, which I think is a big deal because we talked about this in the breakup series, but you know, John seems to have gone through this crisis of confidence in 1968. I mean, John references this period and he, with Yoko, rebuilt his identity. And Paul, you know, he's supportive in 69 of John and Yoko's efforts, but he doesn't praise John for it. You know, in the, in his self-interview, he's like, well, it doesn't bring me any real joy. And then here it's, that's fine, but I'm not that impressed. So there is an element of, yeah, John, I see you. And I know everybody else kisses your ass and calls you man of the decade, but I kind of think you're full of shit. I think he wants Paul to appreciate that and respect him for that. Paul's saying like, you're being a hypocrite. I see you. It's as much a song about Paul and Linda and yeah. their like a vindication of them. He doesn't really sing that much about That's it. That's right. There, there, That's right. There's maybe the, the in this song, it, it's more towards the end when he sings, you know, crazy baby, it's not like me. But the song is a vindication of Paul's right, both yes. in the sense of, you know, a legal <laughs> right, his entitlement to do whatever the hell he chooses, and also it, the rightness of his actions, as in nothing we're doing is wrong. Both of those are implied in the anger and the the assertiveness of the the way the song kind of builds musically, and there's all these shouting, shouts and whoops and things in it. Yeah, as much as anger and heartbreak and love and romanticism are all part of the album, there definitely is also this notion that we are right, yeah. which is very Paul McCartney. But a couple of other things that are really interesting in this song, there is the, you took your lucky break and broke it in two. And that's the one we hear John singing in the Imagine Mm. film. You know, I think that directly hit John. Paul probably knew that this was going to bother him. I believe that there was an article in the 60s that suggested that John Lennon really got a lucky break by partnering up with Paul McCartney. Mm. And it was suggesting that Paul McCartney was the talented one. Right. I think they are equally talented. This is what some writer said, and I think it got under John's skin. And Paul seems to have been aware of this when he uses that line back at John, like that this was a sensitivity. And I agree with you that it's as much uh, a reproach of John, like you took the best thing that you ever had. And a defense of himself, like an owning, do you know how good I am? Mm. You know, do you know what you lost? And I think it's a defense of himself as well. But John took it personally, because John takes everything extremely personally. And so you can tell the fact that he's singing this, that he, it hurt him. Yeah. And he brings it up in the St. Regis article that, you know, he talks about that finding Yoko was was so lucky for him. When he was with Paul, he was always treated like he's the one that won the pools, right? That's right. And so I think that this is an insecurity of John's. Yes, absolutely. Like he he would always talk about the decision that he made to, you know, let Paul into the quarrymen, <laughs> yes. being a decision where he knew he was... Um, 
limiting the amount of control he had in the group by letting Paul in. And it was a conscious decision to improve the musical quality of the band. But yeah, the acknowledgement that it was ceding a certain amount of power to Paul is something that he always would come back to as the essence of his decision. So it must have been something that, um, that preyed on his insecurities. Yeah, well, it suggests that he always knew how good Paul was right mm. from the start. I think it was an oh, equal yeah. relationship that we're both were lucky to have found each other. And I'm sure Paul would say that. Yes. But this was clearly something that John was worried about. And you can see John claiming all of his songs like he's worried about not getting credit. He's worried about being perceived as riding Paul's coattails. You know, and it's a personal insecurity. I think Paul's use of that term suggests that he was aware of this being said. And I'm sure in the past it would have been like, of course not, I'm the lucky one. But at this point, Paul is feeling frustrated with John and just throwing it back in his face. Like you knew I was the best thing you ever found and this was your mistake. At the end of Beatles concerts, Paul would always have this little speech about how, you know, they've played, they've enjoyed themselves, we'd love to stay, but we all have to go off now and, and go to bed. And you yes. know, every single concert, there would be a version of this little speech. And then both in the 1969 and the 1971 Life interviews, he does a kind of a version of that to end the interviews, which is, well, I'd love to stay talking, but unfortunately, I've got a family back at home. Um, in the 71 that's got something to do with it. Right. We've got an album to make, Nature Won't right. Wait. And it's like he's doing a lyrical, musical version of that at the end of Too Many People, where he's gotten everything through his system and mm -hmm. says, well, I'm afraid, you know, Linda's waiting for me in the other room, and so I'm going to have to stop singing this song now and leave. Do you think that this is roughly what he's doing? Oh, man, I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> Those are definitely the weirdest lines uh, within this song, and it's such a complex song. Yeah. But there's a couple of things that I noticed that he circles this. That was your first mistake. You took your lucky break and broke it in two. Mm. Then he says that again. That was your first mistake. I get this sense that he's taunting. I almost get the sense that he's like circling, yeah. you know, and then he switches it and says that was your last, last mistake. mistake. Yes. And I find my love awake and waiting to be. What can be done for you? She's waiting for me. It's this. Too bad, John, you lost the best thing you ever found. You lost your chance, and I've got somebody new now, yeah. you know? My hot Don't wife is sense? waiting for me in the other room, so right. and my was... happiness and success are the best revenge. Exactly. And what's going to happen to you now, silly man? <laughs> you know, what can be done for you? Mm. I can understand how that would have driven John insane, Absolutely. you know, because it's a little bit mocking and taunting, yeah. you know? Also, there is something weirdly sexual about that. And that is another theme <laughs> that runs through this entire album. And I, I don't mean about John. I just mean that I think that perhaps 
Poland are so hot and heavy that it's just very pervasive throughout this album. It's like, I find my love awake and waiting to be. be. The weird, and infinitive form of the verb. What? Yeah. Exactly. It's it like, it, it's it like, dot, dot. and she's waiting for me. And so it's, sorry, gotta go uh, jump into bed with my hot wife mm. or whatever. That's where my dirty mind goes to. But it's all mixed up. It's very Paul to allude to the sexual without being terribly explicit about it. Yeah. (laughs) Waiting to be, let your mind fill in the blank there. Yes. He kind of escalated over the years. um, (laughs) uh, As much as people talk about John reacting to this song, I, I haven't seen that much discussion about what was it that hurt John so badly and made him so reactive to this song, other than potentially wounding his ego. Something else that I was thinking about with this song, and I actually noticed it more in John's response, How Do You Sleep?, which I think is uh, a a different animal, but we won't get into that now. But what John does in How Do You Sleep? is he kind of character assassination, and then he switches and addresses the person, Paul, directly like how do you sleep and the same with this song it's general this whole movement that john is part of is trying to tell us what to do it's getting up my nose but then he turns it to that was your first mistake there's two parts to this song there's the annoyance of john being part of the counterculture and telling him what to do and and there's a second part you broke up our beautiful partnership for that bullshit Mm. and that's your last mistake you didn't see what was there and you're the idiot and we'll lose out because i'm fine yeah we were talking earlier about how it's sad and upsetting if your parents are fighting but it's sadder when they move on with their lives and i hear in the end of that song my find my love awake and waiting to be what can be done for you she's waiting for me it's a bit of an assertion of i've moved on and you know i'm not even thinking about this conflict too much i'll engage (laughs) with it but actually i have better things to do with my time i I definitely think that's what he's saying but then he does start off the song with piss off yeah so it's like when i talk about john in the 70s you know saying that paul means nothing to me and then he continues to talk about how paul means nothing to him for the next four hours you know paul's doing this a little bit right (laughs) now with the song that's true you know saying and by the way i'm over it and they're hilarious i mean and of course it only inspires john and i think that in some ways i i got to assume that how do you sleep was just awful for paul and it's never gone away but there must have been a little bit of fun in the back and forth in that they're both still fighting and engaged. I I don't mean to say that Paul has necessarily completely moved on with his life. You're right to say there's evidence to the contrary (laughs) of this album, but it's almost like he's trying to win the argument by claiming that he has. Right, right. I do think some of these songs suggest that part of him has moved on, but then part of him is still there. Yeah. I'm really intrigued by how Paul initially sings, that was your first mistake. And... The last time he sings it, it becomes the last mistake. That was your last mistake. Do you think that he's talking about the same mistake, being both the first and the last? Or are these two different mistakes? (laughs) Well, it's hard to know based on the lyrics. I mean, he circles it twice. But I do think that we can read into the last statement as he's conveying, I'm done. 
Mm. In a way, I, I almost want to say it's quite kind to say that was your first mistake because it suggests anything that John said or did prior to the breakup of the Beatles didn't really count as a mistake, like bringing Alan Klein on board. <laughs> None of this stuff is really mistake level. So it's generous to John to say you only ever made one. <laughs> It suggests that like, any of the bullshit you did before was okay. That yeah. was like, I could deal with that. This was the thing that I could not live with. You didn't appreciate me. That's it. Mm. And then he turns his focus to switching from John and saying, I'm done with you. And now he switches to my love and yeah. she's waiting for me and she's amazing. Paul could be preying on John's jealousy and possessiveness in their partnership, which I think has not been particularly acknowledged, although John himself says these were issues. And so I think Paul knows this, you know, in later years, he talks about John being a jealous guy. And so Paul's saying, yeah, that was your last mistake. I'm done. And oh, who's this? Oh, my hot wife. You know, I think it's just a little dig between them. Something that's just occurred to me is that it would be interesting to consider this song and How Do You Sleep in the, the more general, a more general comparison of Beatles' use of personal pronouns in song. Um, yes. Because, you know, Beatlemania really begins proper with the meteoric sense of She Loves You. And Paul has said so many times about how um, how pleased he was that he was able to write a love song that wasn't just I love you, you love me, nah, 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 nah. and there's this yeah, kind yeah. of interesting triangle of relationships going on. Yeah. And if if the essence of the that that triangle in the the outset of the Beatles' career is contained within the phrase "She loves you." I'm just kind of a reporter in this scenario. Yeah, um, exactly. It's interesting that by the time the Beatles are breaking up, "She loves you" has become well. Now she's waiting for me. Yes, because there is the friendship. They're talking about somebody else. Yeah. Whereas right now he is going and joining the she. Yes, that's right. And the you character is the one who's the outsider now, very that's much. That's right. And so, you know, when I say it's vaguely sexual, I mean about Paul and Linda. That kind <laughs> of is pervasive, pervasive throughout this entire um, album. You know, it is very earthy in that way. Um, but I think that what it does suggest is Paul is like, and I've got something else a new collaborator that's incredible and you're kind of being forgotten about. You know, John's the outsider. He's feeling sorry for whoever he's speaking. What's to be done for you? Yeah, yeah. There's something patronizing about now what can be done for you oh, in the same totally. way that um, we'll get to it. But I think that there's a, a patronizing quality to Dear Boy as well that um, I can oh, imagine definitely. would have been infuriating if you thought that the song was written about you. <laughs> Can you imagine? John would be like, but I have Yoko. What are you saying? Those two are ridiculous. In the breakup series, we talk about this often, that their partnership just had a, an overlap. And John and Paul both addressed this in the 70s and Paul in the 80s about how their partnership wasn't contained to just the professional. It was a friendship. They were kind of codependent. You. So you can see how when they have new partners, that also is something that is threatening to both of them, you know? 
And we see John in the St. Regis interview a few months later rants about Linda in that interview. Even though it is defiant and, and aggressive and he's taking John to task and he's angry and Eric, the Norwegian, talks about Paul like wanting to jump on a plank of wood to show his anger yeah. and to express it. Like this is the musical therapy. I think it's great because it doesn't eviscerate John. The fundamental message is that you're a bit of a hypocrite. You're kind of full of shit and part of a movement that's full of shit. And you didn't appreciate me. And I mean, all those things are insulting. But they're not destroying somebody, you know? Yeah, I think that when too many people is conceived of as um, a punch swung at John Lennon, I think that oversimplifies the song and doesn't give it its due, which is, yes, that's an element of it, but it's also punches swung at entire movements in culture. And it's a song that's about John Lennon as much as it's a song to him. And as I said, they are different things. Um, And I also think that it's partly a song about Paul McCartney. Um, One of the most important lines in the song is, it's crazy, baby. It's not like me. The song is as much about the me as it is about the you or the her. That's all about Paul's agency in this situation and saying, no, that is not what I want to do. Leave me alone. Paul is very, in some ways, confident during this period because he has embraced fatherhood and a form of masculinity that he's comfortable with. Yeah. And yeah, I know you guys want the rock god. But I've already lived that. I've given that to you. I've done that. That's not interesting to me. And sorry, it may not be what you want, but I don't care. Like there is a certain confidence in Paul's willingness to not run with the crowd. Yes, that's quite astute. I think you're right. I think he is, in a way, he conceives of it as uh, learning to switch off. I think that's part of it. But I think that might mistake things a little bit too, because it's not as though Paul is not trying. There is, like we were saying um, in a previous discussion, um, a really palpable sense of ambition to this. Um, But it's very much on Paul's terms, and there's an extent to which he doesn't care if these are misaligned with the underground or whatever you want to call the counterculture. Yeah. You know, it's taken 40 years for people to kind of go, Actually, that was pretty cool. It's taken a long time for us to get outside of that ultra macho rock and roll, glam, hedonistic rock stars. That was what men were supposed Mm. to be aspiring to. And Paul just rejects it at some point. And there is a confidence to that. And so Paul's just like, I'm going to do things my way. And I think that speaks to his artistic confidence. You know, it couldn't have been easy to do that, but he did it. You know, and I think that this song is really representative of how much he hates to be told what to do. (laughs) It's a little tangential, but one of my favorite stories um, that's illustrative of the extent to which Paul hates being told what to do. When he first moves into Cavendish Avenue, he hires this elderly couple to act as a a pair of servants, like a housekeeper and a kind of de facto butler or or valet. Um, But... Every time the guy laid out clothes for Paul to wear in the morning, as the as a valet is supposed to do, it's yeah. part of the job. Paul would have this little weird revenge against him by ignoring the clothes and picking out different ones. Yeah, it's something that's so ingrained in his personality, isn't it? 
<laughs> this rebelliousness. Yeah, there was something too about switching out the salt and pepper shakers to, you know, <laughs> on the table setting. It's ridiculous. But that's also a bit of a class element to to that. Yeah. You know, and, and I think there probably is in the counter- counterculture as well. But yeah, I think he quite enjoys breaking rules that he doesn't think makes sense. Yes, um, like having to wear a jacket and a tie in a restaurant, which is the example exactly. he gives in 1971 in his life interview. <laughs> exactly. So how they made him into a square oh, that yes. went along with the establishment is so crazy. I have no idea how... Everybody was fooled into believing that. He's still, uh, I, look, yeah, I, I think it's partly what he's complaining about in this song. Um, yeah, he, I think, yeah, yeah, part of the agenda of the song is it's really unsubtle to assume that if I'm not 100% with you, I'm therefore 100% against you. I'm neither of these things, and you're being obtuse if you can't realize that. Well, yes, there's a certain sophistication that is required for that argument that, I don't know, things were very black and white then. But it it is actually quite a funny point that the things that Paul rebels against at that time are like, he's rebelling against the counterculture telling him what to do. And then he's rebelling against Rolling Stone telling him how to be a rock star. Yeah, those are true, Paul, but you might actually, there are other things you could be rebelling against, which he does do as well, as we'll talk about later with Uncle Albert, that he is also rebelling against the older generation, Mm. but you know, he does that in a softer way to them. He's a little bit more understanding to them. Well, that's key, I think, that one of the things that complicates Paul's rebellion is that, yes, he likes breaking rules. Um, He likes being seen to do his own thing in a slightly grandstanding way, but he Mm -hmm. will also have a degree of sympathy for whoever he's rebelling against, which is one of the things that makes him such a complex and fascinating character. And why he's not always able to defend himself well is he's always seeing every point of view, including John's. And it's sometimes like, well, Paul, you could just take your point of view right now. It's a lot of discussion about the song, but it's an important song. And in terms of your first point, I mean, this album came out in May 1971. Mm-hmm. And by the time this comes out, John has dropped Lennon Remembers, which is brutal. And he has come out with Plastic Ono Bands. And I know everybody thinks that Paul is not in that album, but I see Paul being all over that album. I think a lot of John's trauma comes from the breakup of the Beatles, as well as his parents. And certainly Paul, you know, is responding. So they're responding to each other. So it's certainly not Paul making the first move. You know, I found out or God. I mean, those songs came out before. Yeah. Given everything that we've said about this song, it's subtle and complex and potentially contradictory elements. Isn't it reductive to think that what Paul is doing is taking John Lennon on? (laughs) Well, it's absolutely reductive. That's problematic in so many ways. First of all, it's so stupid and macho. And Mm. there's a joy in saying that, like, my hero, John Lennon's going to take him down. It's not frowned upon, as in maybe John was out of control, you know. But there's also Mm. this idea that Paul's not as tough, which I think Paul is every bit as tough as John. The difference is Paul is not willing to go for the jugular. 
yeah. and show some judgment somewhat in some ways. So that's a different issue. But I think the thing that bothers me most is that it doesn't afford Paul his own need for self-expression, which is yeah. what this is primarily. This is about Paul saying his piece that he mm. hasn't said yet. And, you know, should he be editing himself out of fear of what John Lennon might respond with? No. And I think he, I think frankly, he's okay with what John, like he was okay with how do you sleep? It didn't kill Paul. You hear Paul in 1971 saying, John's John. What wounded Paul, unfortunately, was that all of the media took John's side and took the story seriously. You know, and that's the unfortunate thing. None of these journalists showed any real judgment. It's Paul's album. Is he not allowed to say and sing and do what he wants on his own album? Like, if, if, he, if that's not a space in which he can work through things, like music is a form of his personal therapy, or even to air grievances, then when is he supposed to do this? I mean, it's not like he's seizing the microphone from John Lennon at an (laughs) IRA support rally in order to to say nasty things about his former partner. This is his space and his turf. Right. He not allowed to express himself because fundamentally, I don't think this song was written as in, I'm going to pick a fight with John. I think he wrote it because he was angry and this is what he wanted to express. And that's what bothers me sometimes is they don't allow Paul to have his own inner life. I do think that John and Paul are having a musical conversation, but I think we should allow each of them to have their own need to say things, you know? Yeah, this does not pick the fight. The fight has already started by this point. Paul is continuing the fight, if anything. John has come out with Plastic Ono Band. And some of those like God or I Found Out, I mean, Paul is in those songs and they had to have hurt Paul and frustrated him. And Lennon remembers must have frustrated him. And so absolutely that the fight was already picked. On the other hand, you know, you look at the song on the surface, this did not ruin John's reputation. It did not even make John look that bad, frankly. Yeah. So quit complaining. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. John turns around and I actually think that what John said about how do you sleep, about ultimately it being about him was totally true. What he's saying is that everything I mentioned in that song, Sergeant Pepper being such a big deal, yesterday being such a big deal, you being good looking is such, you know, you being in love with your wife, those are all things that bother John, you know? Those were all of John's insecurities, not Paul's issue. But anyways, this is Ram, I love it. Yeah, and I love the way that for, for a song that does all of those things that we've been saying, it begins in quite a, a stately, I mean, stately is not the right word. It doesn't come out of the gate with a, like a massive cymbal crash. It, it builds yeah. in a very McCartney-esque way. By the end of the song, it's this cacophony of noise and a very taxman-like guitar solo <laughs> and Paul kind of whooping and yelling and shouting and that's him kind of working through his demon. That's right. Like he's having a party, just getting it out of his system. Party where we both jump and down on top of wooden floorboards.
for an angry song, there is something sophisticated. And you're right to pick up on the Eastern quality to it. You hear it right from the beginning in the way the piece of cake line just, it kind of explores the terrain of the song. That eh, 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 yeah. eh, eh, eh. We talked earlier about George and his, you'll stay on the fucking label, Harry Krishna. <laughs> All these guys were being shitty in in a bit of their way. And, you know, Paul's in an unusual position here where it is the three against one. And I think he probably really felt the need to assert himself. He's really feeling under attack. And so, so I think it's good. I'm into the party that happens at the end. As much as I love the other three Beatles, I'm with Paul and his, um, his party in the end. Yeah, me too. I will have a scotch and coke and a toke with Paul at this party too. (laughs) me too all right well onwards to the next fighting song with three legs well when i walk when i walk This is a fist fight. At least McCartney is gets two in quite quickly. That's right. I, I like how he comes out fighting. You yeah. know, it's just like Paul comes out with so much swagger in this album. I, I I do love it. He's confident and cocky. And you know, after the songs, like I love the songs from Let It Be, but you know, his last single was The Long and Winding Road, which Phil Spector managed to make him sound like he was dying in that song. And so it's it's good to hear him full of like, even though he's upset. He's got his mojo back. Yeah, you know? he's full of piss and vinegar. I don't he know where that metaphor comes from. Right. Yeah. Okay, three legs. It's a little bit like too many people in that at times I think so much attention is paid to lyrics that have a connection to the Beatles breakup or Paul and John fighting with each other that other elements of the song can be obscured. For one thing, it is a song in a blues vernacular. where lyrics about lame dogs and your poor treatment at the hands of friends are entirely appropriate. And I think Eric, the Norwegian, has talked about how the song was inspired by a drawing that Heather had made. Nevertheless, I I am happy to admit, yes, it it is very tempting to hear the song as a lament for the disintegration of the Beatles, especially given the similarities between lyrics like My Dog, He Got Three Legs, uh, and... Paul saying uh, in 1969, in order to put out of its misery the limping dog of a news story which has been dragging itself across your pages for the past year, my answer to the question, will the Beatles ever get back together again, is no. So there are obvious connections to be made. However, that's not all there is to the song. Maybe I can post these to the One Sweet Dream group. But thanks to Emmanuel McLennan, who I promised to give a shout out to, Uh, who has sent me two versions of Paul's handwritten lyrics to this song. Uh, The lines that Paul wrote are not, my dog, he got three legs, but he can't run, but my dog, he got three legs, but he can run. 
And I know in the archive edition, the printed lyrics say can't instead of can. But to me, that just suggests the jury is out on whether the dog can run or can't run. <laughs> and you can listen to the song and you can make your own decisions. In some ways, I think it would be quite Paul for the song yes. to begin by saying the dog can't run, but to work towards a positive yes. where the dog can <laughs> run at the end. And, and that's actually what I hear in the music as well. The way it, right. it starts in this kind of plodding way and the first yes. lyric is when I walk my horse upon the hill the music is the sound of Paul and the horse walking he is doing something here that he doesn't get enough credit for is that he matches his music to his lyrics yes, absolutely. you know and he does that often and it works so incredibly well like they reinforce each other yeah you're, you're absolutely right and then the song has several sections to it. It's um, deceptively complex because when is, you actually. think about Three Legs without listening yes. to it, you think of it as a very simple song. Yes. Um, yes. But then it goes into this completely other section where the music gets quiet and sneaky. Mm -hmm. And that's the section mm -hmm. about the fly. So that's entirely mm -hmm. appropriate that the fly should sound like that. A fly flies in. And then when the fly starts to actually fly, the music gets much louder and more raucous and it, it yeah. exalts in its own ability to fly. The song is spectacular. It's, it's definitely one that wasn't a standout for me, but now it is. I absolutely love this song. It's to me like no reply that the section in When I Fly Above the Maddening Crowd, that it's so exciting that it makes the song. Here's his tweed jacket moment for you. You know where the phrase maddening crowd comes from? Is it that uh, book? It's, it's originally a Thomas Gray poem called Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard. But I expect that Paul, like most of the people in the Western world, would know it via Thomas Hardy's novel, right. Far From the Maddening yes. Crowd. Right. Do you know what? Have you read that book? A long time ago, yeah. Yeah. For listeners who may not have um, had that pleasure, it's a book about people who choose to escape city life, uh, go and live in a kind of very rural, idyllic setting, which nonetheless has some quite harsh elements. And there's a lot of love in their lives, mm -hmm. but there's also quite a lot of betrayal. Doesn't this all sound like the setting for Ram? Paul is so much more clever than he has ever given credit for. Paul, I think, reads a lot, actually. Like, there's a lot of references to literature in his work. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I, I wanted to say about Three Legs is that at the end of the song, when the tempo shifts and it goes, doom, doom, to me, that has always been the sound of a three-legged dog's loping, lolloping run, uh, which is why I think... 
it may have started out as the three-legged dog being the limping dog that needs to be put out of its misery because the beetles no longer exist. But now Paul identifies with the three-legged dog and he's using it as a kind of a, another nature metaphor for something that carries on regardless of injury. Yeah, I think so. That's what I get from the sound of the music, too, that it is running at that point. Yeah. This is one of the songs where Paul is actually being fairly transparent about his emotions. And yeah. it's missed. And like it's focused on that Paul is poking at the, the bear, which he is. He does say some vulnerable things in here. He says, when I lay me down, will my lover love me still? Mm. And there's a little bit of insecurity, you know, like Paul and Linda are such a tight couple at this point. Everybody that meets them at this point says this. But I just wonder if this whole experience with losing his family and feeling betrayed by the Beatles would have given Paul a real insecurity, you know, of like not wanting to lose, you know, the, the great things in his life. Then there's all the stuff about the dog that has three legs and can't run. That seems to be some reference to Apple and the three, yeah, you know, sure, whatever it sure. is. It's really hard to even figure out what he's saying because it's crazy. But I think that he slips in some meaningful lyrics when he says, well, I thought you were my friend, but you put my heart round the bend. I mean, that is such a clear statement of how devastated he is. So... I, I don't know why this isn't seen as an emotionally open song, you know, maybe because he says that and then he goes back to the nature imagery of, you know, mangled flies, <laughs> but then it goes into the fly. But I think it's interesting that he talks about the fact that, look, you know, I thought you were my friend, but you let me down. That is a phrase that is actually treated between John and Paul a lot. Don't, don't, don't let me down, or hey Jew, don't let me down, or I think it's an oh darling too. they use quite often and he's saying but you let me down and put my heart around the bend john george ringo you know he's being pretty clear about how devastated and heartbroken he was by the situation by you know what happened with them yeah and then he goes into the flies we've talked about the fact that maybe in the fall paul was depressed and, and dealing with this and i think he still is but i think that he's moving through it I think he's gone through this period where he is legitimately really brokenhearted and he talks about how he put his heart around the bend. Mm. But then he goes into the fly section and it's he's gone through that and he's saying, now watch me. You know what? You didn't appreciate me, but watch me fly above you all. Mm -hmm. And I love the, the way he sings it. It soars. Yeah. But also, I love the cockiness of it. It's, watch what I can do. Mm. And the thing that always breaks my heart a little bit is that he did do that with this album. Like, I feel like Paul soared and put out something so beautiful, but it was 
he wouldn't have had any vindication at the time, you know? Yeah, if he's saying, now watch me soar, everyone's got blinkers over their eyes or they're not looking in the right direction or yeah. they, they missed the soaring part. He was soaring and they didn't see it. I do like the cockiness of he's like, well, you know what? You betrayed me. Well, fuck you. I've moved through it and I'm going to go right back up there. And I just love the attitude of that. Mm. But there is this one other line. It stops me every single time. It sticks out yeah. like a sore thumb when I fly above the maddening crowd. So he's soaring, but you could knock me down with a feather. Yes, you could. But you know it's not allowed. power to soar they have the power to knock him down really easily apparently yeah the expression you could knock me down with a feather is very old-fashioned i think in english expression for yeah. being completely surprised or bowled over by something well in the original lyrics it's not in there it's just yeah. you could knock me down but you know it's not allowed yeah. i mean i think that there are some code words in this album like i think that occasionally he slips in some lines and and sometimes I think this is one of them. Like, we all know bullshit about each other. Yeah. But you know it's not allowed. That's the that's the one that really stops me. Yeah. Some t even though the expression "you could knock me down with a feather" uh, generally is one that you would use to suggest your bewilderment at something, in the context of the song, it almost sounds like he's admitting sensitivity or vulnerability. Uh, well, yes, because it wasn't there before. You could knock me down. Yeah. But you know it's not allowed. And we've talked before about how there's this perception, at least on John Lennon's part, uh, Paul is this Teflon-covered colossus who isn't touched or hurt by anything. So I'm tempted to think knock me down with a feather could suggest you realize that I do have my vulnerabilities and sensitivities and the things you say hurt. Could be. Could and be. I mean, if that's the case, then John certainly didn't listen to it because he turned around and wrote, how do you sleep? But I feel like in this album, the overall tonality is joyful and there's an energy and there's a cockiness. And then he swoops in and says something really devastatingly vulnerable. Mm. And then he swoops back out again. And that's like this song, like he says these kinds of things. And then he's back to his dog that ha, can run, you know what? And then the dog <laughs> yeah. takes off, you know? Oh, it's curious, but that makes it intriguing. That's right? what I was just about to say, that one of the things that the album one that you keep coming back to and coming back to are these little puzzles like that, that uh, maybe you never get to solve. The effort of listening to it again worthwhile. In the Ram box set, there is yeah. lyric sheets for three legs, and one of the lyrics that he dropped, or one of the verses that he dropped was, um, my dog, he got three legs, but he can run. And then it goes on to say, I need some time, need some time, need some time to be with the one I love. And so that suggests that later, when we talk about heart of the country, you know, nature is really something holy and some something spiritual and something that is fertile and something very good and here it is as well but i think that in this sense 
it's kind of place to retreat to, you know, to sort of gather himself. This idea of I need some time to be with the one I love to gather strength. So it's kind of a return. Like that's a little bit different to me than the, the nature of heart of the country. It's the retreat to the home to gather himself and figure things out. And he talks about this too, as in this period after the Beatles breakup, was him really getting his head together and figuring out, okay, how do I go forward? Yeah, I feel like um, when Paul talks in the 69 Life interview about wanting to be a little bit less famous, or when he talks about Linda teaching him how to switch off or get lost in a, in a good sense of discovery, um, yeah. I think it's about as much Paul learning what private life really means and is, because if you if you look at the way he lived through the especially the latter half of the 1960s his days off are still other people's days on and he's no, still no. performing in some way and this is meant to be him when he's switched off it's not until 69 and meeting linda that he really understands what switching off means accounts of Cavendish just being full of people all the time. I know, know he's, he's holding court almost in the way that John and Yoko would do later at Tittenhurst and then in the St. Regis Hotel. It's almost like they learned how to hold court from being part of the court that Paul held at Cavendish Avenue. I think Paul really was holding court. And, and Marianne Faithful talks about this, that you went to Paul. Paul didn't come to you. Yeah. You went to Cavendish, you know. The only difference being is that John and Yoko's court was much more heavily populated by journalists. Yeah, journalists and, and activists, <laughs> where, where, where Paul is largely a group of bohemians. Yes, artists and rock and roll guys. And, mm. then and Bertrand Russell. <laughs> And then the the clash of Jane's friends that were scared in a corner. Yes. Yes. You know that story about um, the Marianne Faithful tells about uh, Paul and Jane both being present at Cavendish Avenue and every time Jane walked into the room, she'd open the window or she'd close the window and then Paul would come in and then do the opposite and she watched them just kind of doing this over and over again. And she seemed to think that it was symptomatic of the fact that they were on different levels or experiencing life in a different way that would ultimately lead to them breaking up. And then when Craig Brown writes about it in one, two, three, four, he says, maybe she just didn't like the smell of pot smoke. <laughs> <laughs> That is more likely it from everything we've heard. <laughs> Hit me up. You don't know my number. I'll give it to you. <laughs> Probably not have picked up on that. <laughs> Poor Jane. Poor Jane. Imagine them going out for as long as they did if she didn't like drugs, you know? I think they must have had an incredibly strong relationship to have lasted through all the groupies, through their traveling through the, yeah. the pot smoking and all that kind of stuff, you know, to have stuck together despite all of those differences, mm. to me, just there must have been a real bond there. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, but eventually... You like, her. I want to <laughs> If you want to spill, please just get in touch with me. I'll be a very nice interviewer. Oh, no, <sighs> Diana will ask you all the best questions and they won't, be, questions. They won't be vulgar in any way. Well, just maybe a few, but I didn't know. <laughs> those ones don't have to make it to the broadcast version. Yeah. Hit me up. 
You don't know my number. I'll give it to you. <laughs> All right. So next song, Ramon. interesting in that Ram is part of Ramon, right? It was a clue to the title and Ramon, of course, is, you know, one of Paul's initial, Paul Ramon, when it was Beatles. The Silver Beetle, Stuart right. de la Salle and, I don't know, Johnny something. I can't remember all of their, their nom de guerre at this point. Yes, <laughs> that's right, oh, Carl. That one <laughs> makes me laugh because it's not sexy. And no, it's really kind of intriguing, romantic names. And then Carl Harrison, <laughs> like a salesman. <laughs> he managed to make his name sound less interesting, yeah. <laughs> but it's cute. It's after his hero. Yeah. Okay, so I absolutely love this song. Yeah, when I talk about Ram as being a really intriguing album, sometimes what I'm thinking about is the song Ram on. Plaintive wistful, I don't know, maybe even a little melancholy as well. It is a little melancholy. I mean, that's a trademark of Paul's. He manages to get melancholy into a lot, you know? And there's not that much melancholy in a lot of songs, like there, there really isn't in the first two. But this one, I mean, it's, it's haunting, it's angelic. It is of a different time. You know what I mean? Those first two are fighting songs. Yeah. And then this one kind of like out of nowhere comes in and it's almost angelic. You know, he came out swinging, he kind of gets it out of his system. And then the rest of the album really is much more inward and turned yeah. toward the internal Paul, Paul and Linda, their situation. In some ways, Ramon is the antithesis of Too Many People, where Too Many People is loud, raucous. It's quite a wordy song, and it's sung at the listener. This yep. is quiet, eccentric, fragmentary. It's got very few lyrics, and it's it sounds to me like Paul singing very much to and for himself. It does. It sounds like a self-mantra or a prayer or self-soothing. He's talking to himself. Mm. And this is connected to the title of, of the album, yeah. you know? So ultimately, this is all about him as artist, and it is authentic. Uh, it's also just the, the, the once you know that Ramon connects to Paul Ramon, the song becomes yep. more intriguing, but it's not as yep. though you can completely work the puzzle out as to why he's doing that or why he would s sing lines like, give your heart to somebody soon, right away. Because if you want to do a biographical reading of the song, the, the first thing that leaps to mind is, well, Paul has given his heart to somebody, yes, hasn't he? Yes, yes. It stands out to me every single time. And, and so we've discussed potential readings of what this could be about. We've established the idea that once the Beatles end, something that's natural for both Lennon and McCartney to do is to start to remember who they were before that aspect of their identity took over their lives. And if yeah. Paul is rediscovering uh, yep. an older or younger version of himself, one that is older in the sense that it goes back further in time, um, mm -hmm. to when he was Paul Ramon or even you know younger than that, it's a song in which he's almost singing either about or singing directly to his younger self. Right. Um, so maybe when he's singing, give your heart to somebody soon right away. He's telling his younger self 
that the future will be all right to trust in you know the power and glory of love or whatever it is from the other side of someone who's discovered linda right. and is blissfully happy right and the playing of the ukulele apparently paul was doing that at that time he talks about how he would travel everywhere right. so yeah. new york taxis and he was always writing music i mean i guess he's just like constantly so it's not unusual that he is playing a ukulele but it's a little more old-timey mm and it takes you to the past and it takes us out of the place and time. And I think that a different reading of it could be, like I agree with you that it could be Paul telling his younger self, that is the answer is giving yourself, things will be okay, you know, Ramon, give your heart to somebody, it will help. But I also think that Paul has told us that when his mother died, that he put a wall around himself. And I sometimes think it's a reminder to like stay open. You can trust she will not betray you. Yeah, you know? and um, you're right to say that it it connects to a musical tradition which goes back much further in time than rock and roll. It doesn't sound like George Formby singing "When I'm Cleaning Windows," but that's another example of war era popular mm -hmm. song that mm -hmm. was ukulele and whistling driven. And all of those mm -hmm. ingredients are there in Ramon. It takes me out of the place and time, yeah. which Ram does a lot. Ram does disorient. There's a yearning to the song that he's speaking to this younger version of himself. Maybe the person he was before he was completely absorbed into the Beatles. I mean, Paul Ramon was part of the Beatles, but it was before it became his everything and he lost his identity. And if this is about Paul finding his identity or the next iteration of who Paul, like who Paul's voice is without the Beatles is sort of reconnecting with who that person, yep. that child or that teenager was. So I, I do think that there's something to that. And then this idea of this mantra of give your heart to somebody, like it's good to connect. It's good to like love is the answer. The inclusion of Linda in the background, I think is really important. She's like this Absolutely. angelic element in the background supporting him. Definitely, there's two Lindas in this song. There's the ethereal, angelic, ah, Linda, of those, those uh, ghostly sort of um, background harmonies. But with the exception of the word Ramon, or the two words Ramon, if you want to hear it in that way from the point at which paul sings give your heart to somebody soon right away linda is singing that line as well Um, so it's as much Linda singing that to Paul as Paul singing it to himself. And that's really interesting, isn't it? This is her kind of encouraging him. The idea of trust, stay open, give your heart to her. I think that everything that you've just said um, puts paid to this idea of John Landau's that Ram is an emotionally vacuous album gingerly putting forth possibilities here, but I think that's all you can or should do. I, I think it would be a mistake to think that we could work Ramon out completely um, because it's a song that in some ways evades 
a comprehensive understanding of exactly what it is. Like a salmon, every time you think you've gripped it, it just seems to have slipped further from your grasp. And then it's fragmentary, mm-hmm. you know, it like just comes in and then moves back out again, you know? Yeah, and it begins that way. So you have this, the tape machine switching on to the sound of this sort of piano glissando or arpeggio, and then like a, a funny bit of studio chatter before the song begins. And if you think about Ramon as something that contains these elements, that makes it even more fragmentary. It's like when I used to teach modernism as a movement, I used to talk about it being a very fragmentary thing, an art form that works in fragments. You see it a lot in T.S. Eliot's poetry, see it even more in Ezra Pound's poetry. So he has a, a poem that's very short called In the Station of the Metro. It only has two lines in it. He goes, the apparition of these faces in the crowd semicolon, petals on a wet black bough. And what Ezra Pound is doing there is trying to compel you to read the second line as an explanation for the first line or vice versa. But he's also frustrating that by putting a semicolon between them, which in grammatical terms just says, this idea is next to this idea. The one doesn't necessarily explain the other. They're related, but I'm also going to frustrate the relationship between them. I'm going to try and get you to interpret it, but I'm going to make it difficult for you to interpret it at the same time. And I I hear a little bit that in in the fragments that run all the way through RAM, something that, that compels you to try and understand them, but also defeats or frustrates your ability to do so. I feel like Paul is going to do that with his book of lyrics. He's going to give us, uh, he's going to give us glimpses into things, but he won't finish the story. You know what I mean? My takeaway from Ramon is that giving his heart to somebody is the answer. Yeah. That's the solution. And I guess in that way, it fits into the album. Love being the thing that pulls him out of everything. Yeah. What do you think of the way the song begins with that sort of hushed bit of dialogue and like the, the piano arpeggio or glissando or whatever you'd call it? Um, to you, are these elements part of the song? And if so, what do they contribute? To you, are these elements part of the song? And if so, what do they contribute? I see those as an introduction. And in some ways, you know how I talked about the first two songs being his fighting songs, that in some ways you've got the piano introduction is almost like a reintroduction to like, got that (laughs) out of my system. Now, (laughs) now for the real introduction. And, and I don't, yeah, I love that as part of this song, but I don't really see that as part of the Ramon song. Mm -hmm. Do you? No, not really, but I, I like what they add to it. And one yes. of the things I think that they do is um, it's an instance of what happens more generally on RAM, where certain fragments of things are placed next to each other in ways that are intriguing and that, that lead you to want to work them out. Specifically, I was thinking with this song, and, and now that we're focusing on this introduction, in the Pitchfork review, the author talks about how there is a sense that they're mounting a play, you know, a neighborhood play where everybody is pitching in. And to me, there's a little bit of that cutting off the voice and the piano introduction and the ukulele all make it sound slightly amateurish. Yeah. And it's not, as we've said, it's not. He's doing this on purpose. But I do give this sense that there's something else going on and we're just getting a peek into it. 
Mm. You know? If if this is a play or a performance, it's almost like you're you you've got a partially obscured view. <laughs> yeah. Um but that makes you want to to sort of strain your head around to see what's happening even more. Exactly. You can sort of see backstage. And I think yeah. that he's doing that on purpose, you know? Mm. His Beatles work was very polished. He's doing this on purpose because this is a new element to his work, the imperfect, the showing a little bit behind the scenes, you know, and they were doing this a little bit with Let It Be. So I don't want to suggest that it, this is totally new, but it is a new yeah, element to publish. It is, it is. And it, for some reason, the, the thing that's in my head was uh, it's a description of the way an English country manor uh, appears as you go up this sort of gravel drive and there's a line of trees. And the author says that you can just start to glimpse the chimneys above the line of trees as you're coming round. And something about the trees obscuring the house, but seeing the chimneys behind them, it's like the house simultaneously conceals and reveals itself to you. And that that's just this incredibly winning combination of things and and i see that the homespun or amateurish qualities or the fragmentary nature of some of ram has that concealing and revealing duality to it and i love it it's one of the things that makes this album so intriguing and makes me keep coming back to it years and years later even if you look at British style or you know with if you look at sort of upper class style which was I believe, shared through the Ashers and Robert Fraser and all these people that he knew. They never embrace just the new and the most expensive. It's always a collection of the olds and eclectic. Mm. To them, that is what the ultimate style is. And that's really what Ram is like, too. It's like taking a little bit from Buddy Holly. It's, yeah. it's really about how they put things together that makes it interesting. And it's not just the, the bright new thing. It's really all of these things make it something unique. Yeah, and and you're right to to mention going back in time because Ramon, I think, is a song musically that it's it's not really in a in a rock or pop mode. It's something that's a bit weirder than that, but it's also a little bit older than that. If it's drawing musical inspiration, it seems to be a, like a, a half remembered. Yes. version of something like George Formby. And it, he chooses to have this come back later in the album because, again, mm. it's, this is the little wisp of him when he's young and he brings it back. There's sort of a spiritual element to this song, for to me. You know, yeah. it, it's the connection to the younger Paul. It sort of comes around and introduces you to who Paul is. And again, if this is all about evolution of Paul as artist, as figuring out who he is, who his voice is, it makes sense that there would be wisps of him, you know, as teenager, his his original identity that's coming through the album. And, yeah. and again, to me, it make it so emotionally authentic. And, and again, I'm surprised that this didn't capture the imaginations of uh, John Landau. Yeah. I want to go listen to Ramon now. You know, I really do love Ramon. To me, it's sort of like the the soul of yeah. the album. Yeah. You know? Paul's it tapping kind of, foot is the heartbeat of the album. It's true. And then this song and the ukulele is just completely to the heart of the album. 
It's hard to call your favorite a song because it's so short and such a wisp of an idea of a song. But can you imagine Ram without Ram on? No, definitely not. Imagine it without Eat at Home and maybe one or two other tracks, but yeah. not without Ram on. If you take this song out of the album, it sort of loses its heart and its connection yeah, to Paul. Absolutely. So it's integral. You know what else? I, I can just tell you a story about Eric, the Norwegian. He said that Paul was complaining that he missed his dog. And so I don't know why, but Eric was like, I have a dog. And so Paul took his dog as his like comfort animal and used to bring him to the studio and, and sit with him. And I find that really intriguing because on the one hand, you've got Paul being so confident and cocky. And I believe that was true, actually. Like, well, I, I believe when he's taunting, that is part of his you know, swagger coming out. But at the same time, you've got this vulnerability. He likes the connection of a dog being with him in the studio, you know? Yeah. And listeners, the other side to that story is that Paul renamed the dog and <laughs> renamed the dog in such a way that afterwards the dog w would not re return to its original name, but preferred right. the name that Paul had given oh. it. That is also very Paul and arrogant that he's like, yeah, I don't like that name. So I'm going to call it Henry and we are going to give it only steak. And apparently the dog fell in love with Paul and, uh, and his new name. Yeah, that's right. And and you can see the, the maddening frustration at being in a close working relationship or an emotional relationship with Paul. That not only does he do these arrogant things, but he's also always vindicated by them. He was oh right. My God. The dog preferred that name. Paul, it would be a nightmare. Eric talks about the pressure. All of these record companies are delivering guitar after guitar and they walk outside and there's people on the streets. Like the expectations are so immense on Paul. And it's just like they come into the studio and it's just them. Like he didn't have anyone to catch him. Yeah. You know, if Paul would have surrounded himself with a team, at least he couldn't have been blamed. Yeah. For everything. But this is like a hundred percent Paul and Linda. You don't get any filter there. Mm. I love Linda's singing on Ramon. People were so hard on her vocals, you know, in Long Haired Lady. You know, she plays up her New York accent, yeah. but that is put on. I know. Here, oh, when yeah. she wants to sound angelic, she sounds angelic. Yeah, this is a, an album in which both Paul and Linda sing in very characterful ways. There's a great range and substantial differences in the way both of them sing from song to song. Linda does not get enough credit for that. And I love the blend of her. It adds so much texture. Because at this point, I really think Paul's voice is at his height. Mm. I think his voice is better here than it was with the Beatles. Wow. I do. I think that he is coming into his maturity as a singer around this period. Mm. And he's doing things with his voice that he didn't even do with the Beatles. And yeah. his voice never gets the credit that I think it deserves. Yeah. You know? No, I always think of it in terms of voices, plural, at least up until yes, the, the voices, late, late right. 70s, voices. You know, we were talking about the, the soft and the hard, yeah. and this album is basically a lot of tensions and the combination of opposites bringing them together. I think he loves the combination of his and Linda's voices. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if this is an album that, that, has a tension between hard and soft, you would think that Paul identifying with the Ram makes him the hard one. But most of the time, it's actually the opposite. It's the case. Paul is the one that sounds soft and vulnerable, and Linda is the one who sounds stronger or harder. Right. And from the anecdotes of the time, Linda was really tough. Mm. You know, she was the one that was saying, no, stop talking about the Beatles. This is Paul McCartney, independent artist. Mm. She was a core of steel for him. 
But anyways, we managed to talk for 20 minutes about a song that's like 20 seconds long. Oh, but it's so worth it. But it's, it's <laughs> such a good song. Okay. Okay, dear boy. Dear boy. Where to start with Dear Boy? I mean, Dear Boy is definitely one of my favorites on this album. Yeah. Is it one of your favorites? Absolutely. Mission.